Hey there guys, uh, it's Mark here again. Uh, just shooting you another quick warning that one of the films that we're going to be talking about in this episode uh, does feature some pretty unsavory and upsetting content. Uh, so just a pre-warning that when we discuss Alice Sweet Alice, uh, there are themes of molestation, abuse, child endangerment, a lot of really quite you know unpleasant stuff. So this is just a heads up that when we do get to that section, we will be talking about that. Um, thought it would be best to let you know. And yeah. Enjoy the show. That was my cat meowing. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to your favorite movie podcast, Kino Inferno. I'm one of your hosts, Aiden. And I'm one of your other hosts. I'm Mark. And as you can tell by this sensuous introduction, Mm. today we're talking about slasher movies, or more appropriately... Proto slasher movies. So, Mark. Jesus Christ, maybe. What do we mean? (laughs) (laughs) What do we mean by proto slasher movies? This theme was your choice. Yes. You are the slasher movie boy. I am a slut. You love to take a slash. Yeah, he's always taking a slash all over a big airy man's chest. (laughs) We are one minute in. (laughs) And you've already made references to me. Shooting my feculents all over men, and honestly, I'm living for it. Uh, yes, I chose this subject because I, like I said, I'm a big old slut for slasher movies. Um, they're one of my favorite genres of movie, um, hence why I subjected you to all five screen movies recently. Um, it's the reason why I've seen every Friday the 13th movie at least five or six times a piece, um, you know, for better or for worse. Um, but there's always been a lot of like discussion and debate over the years as to like where the slasher movie genre started um i'm gonna just be upfront and say in my opinion halloween is the first proper slasher movie or at least like in terms of what we know as the slasher movie so 1978 john carpenter halloween that to me is the first true slasher movie yeah well that's the one that has the um you know all the tropes that we now associate with the genre exactly you know it has the it has the first like the final girl and like uh, the masked killer and everything so like yeah, I think I would agree with that, but there's certainly um, scholarly debate as to the precursors to Halloween and the precursors to the slasher genre in general. And we are nothing yes. if not studious scholars of cinema. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of movies that predate Halloween that are arguably like slasher movies in their own right or completely inspired. Obviously, like you know, Jallo cinema is such a huge influence on like the slasher genre. There's so many movies in that canon which you could argue. And are if you movies. don't know what Jallo is as a genre, as a thing, as a mood, as a vibe, go back to season one, episode two. The new Jallo. Jallo is what Jallo. we had to say. Jallo, yeah. Um, go check that out because uh, it gives us more hits on the website. It does, and also you might learn something. Um, 
Well, probably not. We try to inform as well as entertain. You know, we are mostly dick and fart jokes, but we do try and at least, mm. you know, enrich people's knowledge of cinema. Um, yeah. But I mean, it's part of our mission statement, which was given to us by the marketing kangaroo. We've been in a lot of meetings since last week. Yeah, he's a, a bit thorough, meetings. isn't he? He's a bit too thorough, if anything. Yeah. But, uh... Can't make us go corporate. <laughs> uh, oh, shit, here he comes now. Boing, 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 boing. <laughs> All right, mates. Uh, any chance you could turn down these sort of homoerotic piss play early doors? That's the sort of thing that, uh, I don't know if you know, is a bit of a turn-off for the average listener. Um, also, just throwing it out there, could you do another one about cats? People like that one. All right, see you later. Boing, 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 boing. What a come. What a come. Something tells me, right, he really likes the cats episode, because he won't stop bringing it up. Well, that's a very popular episode, Mark, and for good reason. If people want to check that one out, that's season one, episode... It's episode nine or ten? Nine. Yeah, something like something that. Something like that. It was, it was in season one, goes Lloyd Webber Lunacy, where we talked about... Mm. Well, we mostly talked about cats. We touched on the Phantom of the Opera, but we pretty much just talked about... Well, should I more accurately say, you talked about cats. <laughs> And yeah, yeah, yeah. You completely and you learned. You listened. You I learned. I don't know what was happening to me during that. I just got the biggest, most deranged lecture on the history of cats. That I I don't. I think anybody in the nobody's had a better lesson on cats than I have. I think that's what I'd say. Um, but getting back on topic, before you tell me some more things about Skimble Shanks and all the rest of those weird horny cats, um. There's definitely quite a few films that predate Halloween that, um, you know, are definitely uh, helping to shape that genre as it was sort of burgeoning and such. Um, two of which, obviously, we're talking about today. Uh, I'm also going to shout out Black Christmas, which um, could arguably could be considered the first slasher movie. Uh, but... The 2019 Black Christmas, starring Imogen Poots. Ah, uh, yes. Big Imogen Poots. That we covered on um, the Christmas special from last year, <laughs> Crimo Inferno. So if people want to hear our opinions on that, then uh, you know where to go, baby. I just want to point out that Aiden has clearly been taking notes from the marketing kangaroo because he is all about past yeah, promotion yeah. right now. He's got a gun. He's got a gun, Mark. He does He's have a gun. gun. Uh, He's Australian as well, so he'll use it. <laughs> Actual <laughs> psychopath. Um so the movie... like all Australians, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking it. I didn't want to say it. I'm glad you said it because now I won't get sued by all of Australia. No, look, we should say for legal reasons, not all Australians are psychopaths, but they are all criminals. You were saying, <laughs> but it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and this is how we lose all of our Australian listeners. By which I mean that one crazy bloke who listens to us. Mm. Crazy Steve. So, for this episode, because, you know, we are going to be talking about proto-slashes, uh, two films that we've decided to talk about. Uh, my choice is Alice Sweet Alice from 1974, and Aiden, your choice was? Uh, Psycho from 1960. I don't know if the listeners have heard of this one. Uh, directed by some guy called Alfred Hitchcock. Um... I thought his name was Alan Stopcock. <laughs> No, that's uh, you're thinking of a different bloke. Um, the uh. yeah, so I don't know if people have heard of that one. A bit obscure um, from 1960, obviously a bit underground. Um, <laughs> will it be Kino? Will it be Inferno? Well, let's find out.
caused you some trouble. No. Uh, mother, my mother, uh, what is the phrase? She isn't qu quite herself today. You shouldn't have bothered. I really don't have that much of an appetite. Oh, I'm sorry. I wish you could apologize for other people. Don't worry about it. But as long as you've fixed a supper, we may as well eat it. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, adapted from the novel by Robert Bloch, tells the story of Marion Crane, played by Janet Leigh, as she impulsively steals a large sum of money from her employer and goes on the run, being forced by circumstance and inclement weather to take refuge at the Bates Motel, a rundown roadside joint that would certainly earn a negative yacht review or two, run by the twitchy Norman Bates, portrayed in iconic form by Anthony Perkins. As the two converse, it becomes clear that Norman lives in the shadow of his abusive and controlling mother, and is deeply maladjusted despite his initially pleasant demeanour. Marion finds herself murdered for her troubles, leading her sister, her lover, and an ill-fated private detective to investigate the Bates Motel and eventually learn the troubling secrets that Norman is struggling to hide. So, Mark. Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Can I just say, kudos to you, because you basically gave us 90% of the plot of Psycho there, which means yes. that we don't have and to for some reason, I covered up the spoilers. <laughs> As if anyone doesn't know. People who haven't seen the movie know what the ending of Psycho is, right? Um, but listen, Mark. Marky Mark, 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 Mark. What is your relationship to Psycho? You've seen it before, I assume. Oh, I've seen it quite a few times, but before recording this episode, this was the first time I watched it for quite a while, or at least in its entirety. Um, I remember catching some of it uh, on TV not long ago, and just sort of having it on for half an hour. Um, but no, I've seen this movie quite a lot. It's a film that my mum likes quite a lot, so I've seen it quite a lot because of her. It means I've also seen the sequels quite a few times as well. Um, That's interesting, because my mum was a big fan of Bates Motel when that was on. I've not watched much of that, actually. I used to live with somebody who was really into it, and I caught little snippets of it here and there, and it seemed quite good. Um, yeah, I've not seen it. I've only seen bits and bobs when I was staying at my parents, but... Uh... It looked okay. It's got Vera Farmiga in it, so it's definitely worth a look mm. in my eyes. Because um, and it's also Freddie Highmore, isn't it, who plays Norman yeah, plays, in the series? Uh, series. Big, I mean, it went on for five more. seasons, which I was like, that's a lot yeah. <laughs> for this kind of story. Um, yeah, especially given that the the ending of the series is kind of it must be the setup to this movie, right? Yeah, I believe the final season of Bates Motel is the events of Psycho. Oh, okay. What sure. I gather. I mean, it's similar to that Obi-Wan TV show that's out at the minute that I don't give a shit about, because... I have not seen it. Everybody's kind of like, oh my god, it's this Obi-Wan series. I'm like, right, but we already know that Obi-Wan and Darth Vader, like, we know what happens to those characters. Like, so yeah, where's so the... Yeah, like, how much... How much more tension? can you really ring out of it, yeah. Yeah, like, how... Um, yeah, I'm just like, yeah, can we just stop banking off on franchises like this? Anyway, um... So, Psycho, I've seen it quite a few times, and I was really excited to watch it again for this guy. It has been a while. Um, and I'm a little bit apprehensive to talk about this movie, purely because what can you really say about Psycho that hasn't already been said? Like, it's one of the most well-talked about and well-analyzed movies ever. So it's kind of hard to just not feel like you're yes. reiterating the sort of spiel that comes about whenever this movie gets brought up. Well, that is the difficulty we're going to have, but I think what we can sort of do, uh, because like yourself, Mark, I've seen this movie a few times. I wouldn't say I've watched it regularly um, in my days, 
But uh, I've certainly, um, I think the first time I watched it, I was probably GCSE age. So, mm, um, yeah. What, like 13, 14, 15 or something. Um, and I've seen it a couple of times since then, uh, but not for a while uh, before watching it for the show, like yourself. Um, but yeah, I think what we can do is, because obviously we can go over some of the stuff that people always go over about this movie, but I think what we can do for, and why I kind of picked this for this uh, subject, as I say, uh, a little peek behind the curtain. Ooh, showing a bit of leg. Is that clunge? No, it's closed too quickly. Um, <laughs> What's that smell? Is it clunge? <laughs> is that is that clunge? Um, <laughs> Available on a t-shirt soon. <laughs> uh, we should start a sister show called Is That Clunge? Anyway. Um, <laughs> is it like your old game show idea? Was it damp or moist? Damp or moist, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, that speaks for itself, that title. Um, (laughs) Is it damp or is it moist? Um, Listen, what are we talking about? Um, Psycho. Yeah, some bloke in women's clothes. That's steady on spoilers. Um, (laughs) To Psycho. I'm going to add in like a a klaxon sound there for spoilers. Um, Listen, Mark. What we can do for this episode of the show that we both present, uh, Kino Inferno, is we can talk about what it's like to view this movie uh, through a modern lens. Yeah, I like that. Because obviously we're talking about how it pertains to um, slasher movies, right? So, you know, look, we're not going to just go over the same old shit of like, oh, did you know the blood was made out of chocolate sauce because they knew they were making it in black and white and it would show up better. Or, oh, they, they tricked the censors. They thought that they saw a naked boob in this movie, asked him to edit it out, and he just took it and then didn't do anything with it and sent it back, and that's the movie we have now. Um, there's some interesting stuff with this movie about like censorship and stuff that we can maybe get into down the line, but um, I guess what I want to ask you is, like, what is it like watching this movie uh, through the lens of like all the things it's influenced since? Because obviously you're an aficionado, uh, a connoisseur of the slasher genre. Um, so with that in mind, where do you think Psycho sits today? Because obviously at the time it was a sensation. Um, but how does it how does it sit today for you as a viewer of slashers, as a taker in of knifey stab movies? So for me, watching this film now, um, it, again, looking at it as somebody who's sort of grown up watching slasher movies, it's kind of amazing to see a kind of how low-key this film is for the most part like a lot of people think of psycho and again they do think of the more iconic scenes they think of the shower scene uh they think of arbogast getting slashed on the stairs uh they think about like the reveal of mother's corpse but the shocking lurid moments are really quite few and far between in this film like they do hit really hard when they come about um but yeah it's a surprisingly low-key movie it's a very talky movie as well but like i'm okay with that because it's very atmospheric and it really mm. gives like its characters a chance to breathe, and you don't really get that in a lot of like slasher movies because obviously the body count has to be big. Yeah. Also, interestingly, two people die in this movie. That's it. Like. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, there's there's pre-movie deaths that we find out about later on. Yes, so. but on screen we only see Marion Crane and Arbogast get killed. Yeah. yeah. Um, and even then, like the murders yeah. are really quite not that graphic. They rely so much on suggestion. Yeah, well, that's the classic Hitchcockian thing, isn't it? It's, um, there's a lot more uh, yeah, suggestive content than there is explicit. Um, so like in the shower scene, uh, it's not that you never see the knife break skin. You, you very rarely see it. You, there's three frames, I believe. Mm. 
Only three um, frames that show it. And even then, it's like a, a lighting trick, I think. Um, yeah. Obviously, that shower scene has to be spoken about because not only is it, you know, one of the most iconic and parodied scenes in all of cinema, um, but it was very much... Um, We've seen it time and time again in slasher movies, particularly, obviously, Scream is the big one, where mm. you know, the most famous person in the movie gets killed relatively early in the film. Obviously, slasher movies get that get that out of the way much sooner. Like It's a good 35 to 40 minutes before Janet Lee gets stabbed to death yeah. in the shower in this film. Um, they spend a lot of time with her. Um, and then she just gets really swiftly, brutally murdered. Yes, they really build up to it. Because we should say, I mean, I kind of touched on it in the spiel. We spend a lot of time with um, Janet Lee's char- uh, character, Marion, because uh, obviously we see her with her lover, Sam Loomis. Just going to leave a pregnant pause there. Obviously, real ones know what we're referencing there. Um, mm-hmm. Or what was referencing this, I should say. Yep. Um, yeah, so we, we spend a bit of time with her lover and we kind of see her situations. He's like dissatisfied with um, just being a shag piece basically <laughs> and um she wants him to you know commit which uh you know it's a common it's a problem as old as time ladies and it's a problem that persists to this day um men are dogs what can we say um it is true that, we are the fucking worst but the um i thought that this is actually something that was quite interesting because this is one of the elements that the film uh, censorship board really kind of cracked down on was this early scene because one of the things that they were absolutely against at this time um was unmarried couples being implied or shown to have any sexuality right and even married couples they'd often be shown sleeping in separate beds and yeah. things like that um so to have this scene like it kind of opens on this with um marion and sam like rolling around on the bed and she's got her you know conical bra out she's got those tomb raider titties going on yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's not like you're seeing the big three tits bum fanny but yeah. it's quite suggestive like there's a lot of stuff that kind of you know She's kind of saying to him, "Oh, you need to put your shoes on." Stuff implying he's been uh, naked. Um, oh, scandalous, I know. You can hear the pearls being clutched, can't you? Good lord! Um, I know. I mean, of the time, I imagine audiences in 1960 were probably very much shocked by this. Like, it's definitely. Well, I don't know if audiences were, but certainly the censors at the time used to crack down on this thing kind of quite a lot. I think it's kind of it's it's easy to say like our oh, audiences would have found this shocking, but at the end of the day. Audiences go home and fuck their women. You know what I mean? Or they fuck their That's women true. Well, okay, yeah. Whatever. I think shocking might be the wrong word there, but it, it probably yeah. would have been. It would, I imagine this would have been very exciting when it came about because you know. Yeah, it certainly would have been. It was seemed lurid, so. Yeah, absolutely, and like I think in like looking at it in the sense of how it helped to shape slasher movies, um, and again, this is something that's talked about a lot in terms of Psycho, but it really did push the envelope for like what was acceptable on screen because yeah. uh, you immediately open with Marion and Loomis getting all hot and heavy I mean in a slasher movie they'd be raw dogging like they'd be was, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah if this was 1985 we'd be starting with you know big bosomed Marion Crane getting ridden rotten on the bed wouldn't we and uh, KFB yeah. Marion Crane known filthy bitch KFB you heard it first. KFB baby um but no, what we in fact get is this scene. And, you know, there is some quite suggestive stuff. Like, she's kind of saying, oh, I don't want to keep meeting up in these uh, motels. And, you know, he says, well, plenty of married couples do that and this kind of thing. So they're very heavily implying, like, you know, some fucking going down. Um, but yeah, so Mar- Marion leaves to go to her work. Uh, and this is where she's first tempted by uh, the, f- the staggering amount of money 
that it's forty thousand pounds. Um, well, when you think how much forty thousand dollars would have been back then, like that's I know, you know, I know, but it's one of those things where it's like, that's would lottery you really, money, you know, would you really go to that? <laughs> I know. Imagine how many conical bras she could own. So many. I mean, we know she's got a white one and a black one. Um, but yeah, so I mean, look, people know the story of Psycho, right? She, t- she takes yeah, the people money. know it, and, and also, can I just say, if you haven't seen Psycho, go and fucking watch Psycho. Like Jesus Christ, it's, yeah, it's yeah. essential viewing. Yeah, so. I guess what I want to talk about is like the way the protagonist is kind of set up, especially given the um, the morality codes at the time, is kind of interesting because we have you know shock horror, an unwed woman getting raw dogged early doors. Um, well, we assume raw dog. We don't know Sam. Uh, Sam doesn't seem like a no love, no, no you know, no glove, no mean, love kind of guy to me. He seems a bit devil maker. I get what you mean. That's the thing. I get it. Yeah, he's a dirty dog. Because he has that line early, early on, which I found quite funny, where um, I'm paraphrasing slightly, where she says, like, oh, next time I see you, I want you know my sister to be there as a chaperone at my house with a picture of my mother on the wall. And then he goes, uh, yeah, no, fine, yeah, we can have dinner. And then uh, we'll send sister off to the movies, we'll turn mother's uh, picture to the wall. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, Sam knows what he wants, and what he wants is Poonani. Um, that's, that's true. That aside... Uh, yeah, we, it's interesting that we're introduced to our female protagonist. So she's an unmarried woman having some sinful, sinful sex in a motel. And then literally the next thing we really see her do that's major is nick a load of money from her employer um, and pull a sickie, which is also wrong. Yeah, I mean, of the two, I know which one I think is more deplorable. <laughs> like, you boss. don't let your work team down. Stealing money from your boss is fine. Like, that's all good by me. We've all pulled a sickie, and anyone who pretends they haven't is lying. Um, we've all pulled a sickie to shag a stranger in a motel and maybe stole some money. Okay, we've all done it. We've all done it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, but this is what I think is interesting. So we have this character who's set up in kind of, um, uh, you know, to, to be someone who's, you know, a little flawed, to say the least, or certainly by the standards of, uh, you know, society at the time. It's interesting to think about that in terms of how it influences later movies, because... Typically, what starts to kind of uh, come into uh, these kind of slasher movie female protagonists is the sense of purity later on. Yeah. And obviously, uh, you know, Janet Lee's character here, Marion, is not a final girl, but she is our protagonist. She's not a final she de- girl because she gets bumped off. But, um, yeah, and but she gets the same level of sort of detail and care and character mm. growth that a final girl typically does. I mean, she's kind of the antithesis in terms of her being, you know, a KFD. But mm. and the, no, I, the interesting exactly. thing as well is like she gets killed after she makes the moral decision because jumping ahead slightly, um, her conversation with Norman later on, which we'll, we'll get into in more detail, at the end of that she's like, oh, I should go back and give the money back and try and make amends, and that's when she gets killed. So yeah. this movie almost isn't doing the thing that later slasher movies are accused of, which is like, you know, there's almost this puritanical morality of like, oh, if you drink, if you have sex. If you're a woman with boobs, you get killed. In this movie, it's kind of like her morality is kind of irrelevant to her fate almost. Obviously, it's her bad decisions that lead her to be in the Bates Motel in the first place. But she, when she dies, we're aware of the fact that she was going to go back and make amends. So I just thought that was interesting, especially given... Yeah, the- a lot of like critics and scholars over the years have talked about like what the role of... Well, 
yeah, what the role of the Bates Motel actually is in terms of like Marion's redemption arc, and you know they talk about mm. the sort of thematic stuff of like when she's traveling down the road at night and it's dark and stormy, and you know the the only site of refuge is there's so much stuff that's applied to that, and I can understand why people go into that. I'm like, no, 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 she just ends up at a crazy person's house. <laughs> that's kind yeah. of it to me. I think there's a lot of thematic stuff, and apparently Hitchcock himself. Um, and Janet Lee as well ascribed quite a lot of meaning to a lot of the events that happened in Bates Motel, uh, which I yeah, think is quite yeah. interesting. And I, I like the fact that the two of them had a really good sort of collaborative idea of what Marion's character was, and they really kind of fleshed out the ins and outs of it. Which I guess again, like in modern slasher movies, you don't really get that. Well, you certainly get the sense of um, that Marion kind of, uh, and this is what she talks about with Norman later on, right? It's like she feels trapped by her life. That you know, it feels like she's not going anywhere. Uh, which is obviously something she kind of shares with Norman in a twisted way. But to her, obviously, the fact that she's unmarried is an issue um, because, you know, she's uh, of an age where at that time you would expect to, you would expect to have settled down with a nice fella. Um, you know, and the <laughs> there's the guy who leaves the $40,000 at, uh, at, at her work. This kind of weird, lecherous guy who comes in and like, he's kind of hitting on her. And uh, yeah, they actually have the the other woman who works with her kind of said, oh, he must not have noticed me because of my wedding ring sort of thing. So you have this sense of like, she's lacking this security in her life in general. Um, which is obviously probably something that was more relatable to women at the time than it is now, because it is kind of yeah. saying like, you know, but then, you know, there is, there is that eternally relatable thing of like all the men around her are complete um, no-hopers really. Like Sam comes good in the end, but while Marion's alive, he's no use to her, right? <laughs> like, yeah, pretty much. And yeah, you know, the only man who is shown to be in any way kind to her outside of Sam is Norman, who you know makes her a sandwich, and then yeah, the that's twisted. Ends up being the one that stabs her to death in a shower. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, he's he's no good either. Not exactly ideal boyfriend material. Running around in his mother's nylons, wanking. Um, <laughs> only ever eating sandwiches and candy corn, which is uh, one little sort of character trait of Norman's that I find really interesting. Yeah, so um, we, we'll move on to Norman in a minute. Let's kind of um, let's kind of flesh out what we're saying about because um, I think we'll, when when we get to Norman, it's all we'll talk about, you know. Um, yeah. So let's kind of think about what we're saying with Marion, I guess. So it, it kind of so in your terms, you're you're the slasher expert. What do you think Marion Crane's influence on the genre is? Because obviously, slasher movies are notable for having female protagonists, generally speaking. I think, um, I don't know if it's a direct influence, but I think she may have pl played into this idea in slasher movies that there's always the character who, and I'm using a phrase here that's not a very nice phrase, but there's always kind of like the, the slut character or the bitch character, the morally dubious female character, as it were. Yeah. I think she was definitely influential in that regard where... Can you give us it, some some hot examples of this uh, character? Oh, I mean, you know, my my favourite bitch in any slasher movie has got to be Judy in Sleepaway Camp. Um, she's just... <laughs> yes. She's iconic. Um, there's Nikki, I believe her name is, from one of the Friday the 13th movies, who, mm. you know, she's this vivacious and sort of almost lustfully predatory kind of woman. Um mm. But no, I think there's plenty of that. And I think, you know, the, the general final girl is definitely like kind of an antithesis to what Marion Crane is, even though she does get this kind of redemption idea where she is going to give the money back and stuff. Um, I think, you know, a, a character that would be com the complete opposite is Laurie Strode, you know, somebody mm. who's never had sex and would, you know, she babysits every hour that God sends, you know, to earn 
money the honest way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas Marion Crane's like, give me dick, give me money, let's do this. You know, Laurie Strode <laughs> it's kind is of a like, hot, a hot mess. <laughs> yeah, whereas like Laurie Strode is, you know, the prim and proper innocent young woman who the only reason that she survives Halloween, and this is a something that a lot of scholars have attributed to Halloween saying it's a misogynistic movie because it's the female characters that are sexually active that get murdered. That's a common common complaint about uh, slasher movies, right? Yeah, and I think in the case of Halloween, the only I think the only reason people ascribe that to it is because, yeah, Annie and Linda are both, uh, you know, they're planning on getting laid with their boyfriends that night, but it's just more a case of, like, I don't think they're killed because they're sexually active. They're just killed because they're more focused on their boyfriends than actually, like, paying attention to what's going on around them. The only reason why Lori yeah. survives is because she's actually, you know, vigilant. And mm. when her, you know, she's getting weird phone calls from her friends, she's actually like, hang on a minute, something isn't right here. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the other two are just like, I want to get fat. <laughs> kind of it. I don't think the movie is in any way, I don't think those characters are intended to be read in any way as, like, misogynistic or anything. I think it's just a case of you know, Laurie's actually being vigilant. And, you know, and yeah. there's a whole thing in this as well where, like, um, Marion is, you know, considering the actions that she goes through, she's always quite defensive and quite, you know, mm. even when, like, she's having, like, a um, an in-depth discussion with Norman, she's still very much kind of in control of it throughout it. And she shuts yes. it down when she wants to shut it down as well. That's the thing. And then the one moment where she's actually murdered is in the shower where she's at her most vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I quite, I quite like that as, as an idea as well. Um, and I think that's why that shower scene is so iconic. We have an interesting parallel between Norman and Marion in the sense that both of them, um, when other people speak of them, they speak of them as like these kind of, you know, Marion, oh, she's this trustworthy gal, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, no one seems to know what's going on in her life. And it's kind of the same with Norman. When you meet some characters later on who sort of knew him growing up, they talk about him as if he's this meek little thing, which in some ways he is. But obviously there's that, with both of them, there's this other stuff going on. And I almost think there's this this commentary in this movie, which is maybe a little absent from other slasher movies, I suppose, which focus more on the titillation and the kind of like, you know, the grandiose scares, so to speak. I think what helps this movie is that the characters feel very well realised, or at least those two definitely do. And you have this idea of like, um, you know, the face that society sees versus the face you know, the actual person. And yeah. in that conversation scene where Norman and Marion first meet, you do get this weird sense of almost connection between the two of them. Like they're talking around things, obviously, because she's mm. talking around the fact that she's just stolen all this money. And he's talking around the fact that he dresses up in his mother's nylons and wanks every night. But, um, <laughs> slash did some murders. And obviously she's kind of talking around the fact that she's stolen this money and, you know, is uh, an adulterer, I guess. Um, Yes. But all, uh, this is the thing, and I think that's mostly exemplified by the fact that Norman has, like, he's genuinely upset that Marion has been killed. Mm. That's the thing. Like, when he first finds her body, he's, you know, genuinely quite disturbed by what's happened. He still cleans it up immediately to, you know, protect Mother, because, you know, he's a, a good mm. little mummy's boy. But, yeah, he's he's distraught that she's dead. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's this thing as well of like, um, there's this kind of thing running through the movie of like Marion's relationship to kind of men who come and go. Um, obviously we have Sam, who's her lover, but he won't he won't commit kind of thing. Yeah. Like he only wants the nook. He only wants the nookie. It seems. Um, and we have obviously her boss, who's this kind of 
you know, kind of fatherly, grandfatherly figure to her, and he has this attitude towards her. But, ah, she's a decent gal, a sweetheart kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then we have this guy uh, who the boss is doing the deal with who comes in, this cowboy hat wearing motherfucker, who's he's just, you know, he's like relentlessly hitting on her, basically. <laughs> or as much as you could get away with in a film from 1960, right? He's basically kind of being like, Boy, I'd sure like to slap that ass. <laughs> it's it's pretty much on that level, really, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and he's throwing his big wad of money around so that everyone can see it. Um, so there's that kind of thing, this kind of crass guy that she relates that she kind of has this dynamic with briefly. And obviously, I think like the fact he's so crass with her almost is part of what influences her to steal the money in the first place. Yeah. Um, you know, it's this kind of thing of like, oh, well, if you're the kind of person who takes advantage of women that way, like, why shouldn't I take advantage of you? It's kind of an impression I get. Obviously, a lot of this is uh, done through implication. Yeah. Because um, we don't actually really see what leads her to take the money. We just see her kind of looking at it, contemplating it, and then taking it. Yeah. Obviously, we can imply that she, you know, we can infer that she's, a, you know, an unwed woman at this point. Um is getting a little too old for that racket um, by 1960s standards anyway. Um, so it's maybe thinking like, well, it, no man's going to look after me. I've got to look after myself sort of thing. Um, well, the only man in the movie that she actually meets who is shown to be in any way, uh, not have any kind of commitment issue and be respectful of women, or at least you'd be led to believe so, is Norman, really. Like he's well, very much devoted yeah. to his mother and, you know, he very much respects women. Apart from when he mm. kills them in showers and stuff. <laughs> well, sure, sure. Yeah. Because there's also the uh, the interaction with Marion and the police officer, which is something that I did want to uh, flag up before we move on from her, which is very interesting. It is. And also, I want to say, from a filmmaking perspective, you can see where John Carpenter got a lot of uh, the shots from Halloween from, because that police officer is framed in yeah, a lot of the yeah. ways that Michael Myers is, especially when Marion's in the car and it keeps cutting between that and him stood there staring at her and yeah. stuff. It's, yeah, you can definitely see that kind of thing. So yeah, just to kind of set the scene, Marion, um, when she first is on the lam, uh, falls asleep, well, she sleeps in the car and is woken by a police officer the next day and they have a terse exchange of words. Um, the copper just seems, seems to be just kind of uh, checking up on her, making sure she's okay. Kind of says, like, you can't sleep here, you need to go somewhere to sleep sort of thing. Uh, obviously, she's thinking about the money that she's got in the car and stuff. Um, it's, it's, really, uh, it's a really well-directed scene, because obviously, as you say, you kind of go from these um, these kind of wide charts and stuff that John Carpenter was definitely borrowing from in several of his movies, to these close-ups as the exchange gets tenser and tenser as you're cutting from Janet mm. to the copper. And he's got these, like, big fucking, like, aviator sunglasses on. It's kind of masking his eyes. And nothing particularly tense is being said, but it's like she's constantly trying to get out of the conversation. He's constantly trying to drag her back into it. Yeah, to, to the police officer's viewpoint, I mean, I, I suppose at that time, a single woman sleeping in a car by the roadside would probably seem suspicious. Like, yeah, well, you know. You know, you, it, he would definitely assume something untoward had either happened to her or she was doing something untoward. Yeah, I mean, it's vagrancy if nothing else. Um, <laughs> but uh yeah so that's so that's that i mean um obviously marion gets bumped off about 30 minutes into the movie yeah about 30 40 minutes roughly um because 
And that's like, and it's sudden. This, I mean, I was yeah. I mentioned this to you off mic as well. Like, I in my head remember the shower scene being so much longer than it is, but it really isn't. She gets in that shower, and then about a minute later, he's stabbing her to death. Like, it's much quicker than I yeah. thought it was. I remember it being really. Drawn. Uh, I remember there being more of her in the shower before the knifing occurs. Certainly, and we should say to audiences at the time, this was a big shock reveal because Janet Lee had been promoted as the star of this movie. Um, this yeah. is part of the reason why Hitchcock had his famous um, no late admissions because he yes. felt that uh, for this film, which was unusual at the time, uh, but he uh, felt the audiences who came in late and didn't see Janet Lee would feel cheated, basically. Um, but yeah, so this is kind of like one of the most iconic reversals of expectations in film history, really. Like. He set up this protagonist. He spent a lot of time with her as well. That's the other thing. Because kind of in my head, I remembered her being in it for like ten minutes, and then it's the investigation. Yeah, no, but she's Norman. you know she is the star mm. essentially until she gets bumped off. Yeah. Um. So at this point, we should probably segue into Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates, uh, possibly one of the most iconic characters in film history. Certainly one of the most iconic villains. Absolutely, um, and. Watching this again, it's amazing to seeing the little... It's the little details in Norman. Like, I mentioned the candy corn before and stuff. Like, mm. a lot is done to kind of, to sort of frame him in a more, more childlike manner. Like, whenever he talks about, oh, you know, yeah. um, uh, a mother's the boy's best friend and he has hobbies like taxidermy and stuff. And he's always just seen yes. candy. He's got a very strange energy to him. Yeah, he's very boyish. And Perkins and... plays it to perfection as well. Yeah, and this is something that I wanted to bring up, actually, because this is something I haven't really heard discussed, but kind of came up as I was doing a little digging around um, the movie. Um, Perkins was uh, bisexual at a time when that was very much not um, not the dumb thing, and there were rumours about his sexuality for his entire life. Um, he was, uh, you know, he had married, marriages and kids and stuff, but, like, he... Um, he went through conversion therapy, I found out, and um, which left him in very ill health uh, later on in his life. Um, but something that kind of seems to be a recurrent theme from a lot of people uh, who knew him is that in real life, he kind of had this affected, meek persona that he would kind of play up. And there are lots of accounts of people saying like, oh, that was just, you know, he, he was always performing uh, initially to seem straight in some respects but also when people knew more about him like you know his sexuality was perhaps um less hetero than he liked to project uh he you know there's a quote from someone i forget who i've not got it in front of me who kind of said like you only saw what tony wanted you to see Mm. and the rest was hidden which is how he lived his life very much norman bates really isn't it which uh, i bring it up because i think it informs this character yeah, um, I would definitely say so. I mean, I've heard similar-ish accounts. Um, mm. I also just want to shout out Anthony Perkins as well, because like, he is a tremendous actor. I've seen him in a few other films as well. Obviously, most people just yeah. know him for Psycho. Um, but one film of his that I quite like, have you ever seen Crimes of Passion with him and Kathleen Turner? <laughs> where he plays that, like... You're, you're talking to the one person who is... It's, it's a certainty that I've seen Crimes Yeah, I figured you might have. Um, but I, yeah, where Kathleen Turner plays a, a hooker and Anthony Perkins mm. plays a preacher who's addicted to poppers who wants to murder her with a dildo. <laughs> like, mm. 
And he's great in movie. that film. Like he's so good at that. I love him at that. Ken, um, Ken Russell picture. Uh, Ken Russell picture. A smutty, smutty Ken Russell picture. Big fan of crimes of passion. Um, but yeah, just winding back to to Perkins because one thing that I also did uh, hit upon in my research, um, which certainly informs this character, and I'm not one of these people who wants to be like, oh, the actor's real life kind of bleeds into the character, man. But in this instance, I definitely think it does. Um, Perkins blamed his uh, what he saw as sexual perversions, or certainly partially blamed it on on this, on his overbearing, abusive mother. So. This part hmm. certainly meant a lot to him, it would seem. Uh, how much of that Hitchcock was aware of, uh, I'm not entirely clear. But uh, this is something he's, that Perkins himself spoke about fairly openly in interviews and in his autobiography and things. So um, it's possible he knew that going in. Certainly Hitchcock had Perkins down as his choice for this role. Um Partially because uh, he seemed, in his words, kind of sympathetic and boyish, which is what we've, we've touched on. Um, yeah. So uh, that kind of sad, harrowing story of a man's life aside. Um, yeah, I think he's incredible in this movie. And like watching every time I've seen it, that's the thing that stands out to me the most. I mean, the direction is very crisp and slick for the time as well. Obviously, Janet Lee's great. The supporting cast, you know, acquit themselves well. I think the thing that really makes this movie stick in the mind is Norman Bates. And I think it's that thing of yeah, the movies that it inspires, that this kind of becomes the codifier of, of slasher movies. A lot of them have these memorable killers, right? They have, you know, Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, all this kind of thing. But I think this is really the only, well, one of the only films of that nature where you can look at the killer and go like, that's the character. Because as mm. much as... Marion Crane is the protagonist. Norman kind of really is our second protagonist. In this yeah, movie. like Marion is very much the lead until Norman offs her, and then he becomes the lead of the movie. Because this is just one little thing I will say is that I do think that the introduction of um, Marion's sister and Sam Loomis teaming up, they are no way near as interesting characters comparatively. Whereas, you know, Arbogast is, is good for his little brief stint. But this thing, like, as soon as Janet Lee's gone, like, this movie is all about Perkins. It's his movie. Yeah. And he's. And I think Hitchcock fantastic. knows that as well. Like, yeah. We're with Norman more than we're with the other characters. So we should say that, yeah, at the end of the shower scene, we get the scene of Norman coming in, realizing that uh, Marion's been murdered. Um, we think at this point, <laughs> unless, you know, we were born after the year 1960, we think at this point. <laughs> that uh, Norman's mother has done the deed uh, and Norman is covering for her, which we kind of find out is sort of true later on. Yeah, to um, a degree. To a point. The, the, there's a very long monologue from a psychologist to that, to that effect. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm not a we'll fan get of that, to that scene. But... <laughs> we'll fucking get to that guy. But um, yeah, so yeah, we get this very long, quite drawn out, like almost silent apart from the Bernard Herrmann score, who we should shout out, by the way. Um, big props to Bernard Herrmann, iconic score, obviously. Um, oh, what more so needs to be said? So good. But because um, not just that, <laughs> but like all of the music all the way through has that kind of. Because a lot of it's quite subtle, actually. Obviously, you mostly think of the score as being the scene from the, well, from the music from the shower scene, which is obviously much yeah, parody, the, the sharp violins and yeah. yeah. And obviously, from from the opening credits, has that that uh, in it as well, but. A lot of it is this very subtle strings that's just kind of playing in the background as people are doing things. And I think one of the most effective uses of that is when Norman is 
you know, cleaning up the murder scene, disposing of the car, watching it sink slowly into the lake. That whole scene is pretty chilling, actually, yeah. even by by modern standards. Yeah, um, I think it's arguably more chilling than the shower scene because the shower scene is like a, a very short, sharp shock of violence. But then it's, yeah. it's the aftermath, and again, you don't get that in a lot of these other movies as well. Like you don't linger on the after effects of the violence; it's always the spectacle of the blood and gore. But then the reality of it is very rarely ever touched on. What makes it more chilling, I think, is that you see that Norman is troubled by it. Yes, which is something you don't get in these. You know, kind of with with the best one in the world, slightly trashier slasher movies that happen later. I mean, even in something that I consider like to be a great movie, Halloween, the whole thing with um, Michael Myers is he's like a remorseless killer. Yeah, That's he's a force of evil. Yeah, you know, he has these the black eyes, the devil's eyes. Yeah, but um, but Norman does not, and that's something that I find quite disquieting about this whole film is that he's a very human psycho, if you know what I mean. Mm. Like he's got this very like. He's got this quality about him. He's troubled by what we later find out, obviously, he has done, or his disturbed personality that he's created has done. Um, he almost seems appalled by. Well, he is appalled. By yeah, exactly. That's yeah. I was mm. touching on that earlier, and this is uh, something as well. Like compared to the other slasher movies and such, the have you have you seen any of the sequels to Psycho? Obviously, I know we're not getting into those now. Um, uh, I think I saw Psycho two about. 15 years ago. Yes, yeah. so Psycho really 2 remember. has thankfully had a bit more of a reappraisal in recent years. It's a really quite solid film, in my opinion. Um, but what's so interesting, again, about Norman Bates is that when you go into Psycho 2 and 3, the Psycho 4, we don't really talk about that one as much. Um, but, you know, they explore Norman as a character more. Like, Norman is still, like, the protagonist of those movies. And they really kind of get into the meat of him being haunted by Mother and him becoming aware of the fact that he's, you know, mentally ill and stuff. And again, you don't get that because in all these other slasher movies, it's just, oh, the killer's back. Let's watch him chop up a few more people. I mean, Freddy Krueger yeah. gets a little bit of development. Chucky gets a bit of development. But they kind of go into more campy, fantastical, weird routes. Norman Bates is always very much rooted in realism. I get, well, realism. Mm. I mean, the the way that they describe his mental affliction at the yeah, end of this we'll, movie we'll is... Yeah, we'll get to uh, that. We'll get to that. Not exactly <laughs> very 19, textbook. It's very 1960, yeah. Yeah. But um, I think the scene that I want to shout out, obviously it's an iconic scene in its own right, is uh, the kind of dinner conversation between Marion and Norman, obviously in the room with all the taxidermied birds. It's just, just unsettling to begin with. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, I was saying that, I was watching that last night with my mate, and I was saying, like, this is the point where you bail out of a window shortly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, why would you stay but, here? <laughs> like, you'd go to that diner down the road, wouldn't you? <laughs> but I think that's the thing, is Marion almost has this reaction to him where which is what the audience has as well, where you're, you are sympathetic. You're kind of drawn in by this kind of boyish quality he has. And he is sympathetic. And, you know, you, you hear about his uh, quote-unquote invalid mother. Um, and then you see these kind of cracks starting to form a little bit when she says, oh, why don't you, you know, put her someplace? And he has that great speech about, oh, you mean a nut house, my mother in one of those places? And he's talking about, you know, and this is obviously our first sort of real inkling that he's properly disturbed is when he's raving about, you know, the the madhouse and the kind of, you know, the laughter and the crying and the blah, 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 and all that. Like, I mean, it's incredibly written dialogue as well. That's the other yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, uh, Perkins delivers it with this, like, because before this point, we've seen Norman, he's kind of meek. He like, yeah, he's clearly attracted to Marion and, um, you know, not really knowing how to talk to a human woman. And, you know, that that makes us sympathetic towards him because we, we feel that he is, you know, somewhat... Um, 
uh, you know, he's, he's kind of, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's hapless. But he's also quite yeah. charming. He's making jokes and all this kind of stuff. And it's yeah. then when she suggests, as soon as they start talking about the mother and she starts poking at him about like, well, you must want to get out sometimes. You hang out with friends and all this kind of stuff. As soon as she starts whittling away a little bit and seeing the the cracks beneath the, you know, the cracks within the veneer kind of thing, that's when he starts lashing out a little bit verbally. And it's beautifully handled in by both actors, I, I must say. like There is a real power play between them because as you say, um, Marion keeps it very controlled. You know, she tries to, as soon as she realizes she's pushing him too hard, she tries to push her back from it. But he's kind of, he's in it, you know, he's, he's yeah. yeah. I think it's, it's wonderful stuff. And that's kind of like, that's something you don't get with a character like Michael Myers as much as Love Halloween. You can never, the whole thing with Michael Myers is the horrors, you can never understand him. Yeah, exactly. Whereas the, the thing with, Norman that I think makes him linger even after so long, right? Is that he has this he's very human. Yeah. He could be anyone, you know. Absolutely. And his uh, and that is almost scarier than this like diabolical creature coming after you. I mean, the one line of dialogue that I find weirdly chilling that he has, and it's uh, it's it's almost like a throwaway line, but it really stuck with me when I watched it last night where she asks him about the taxidermy. And mm. uh, his response is, Oh, it's one of the cheapest hobbies you could have. And I just find that really quite <laughs> unsettling it's yeah, like all the hobbies yeah. you could have you pick taxidermy because it's cheap <laughs> yeah and he kind of says as well that he doesn't he only does it on birds because they're so uh, placid right yeah whereas he thinks he thinks beasts <laughs> look ugly when they're stuff yeah which is uh again like i mean if somebody said that to me in a room full of taxidermy birds i'd be like this man is going to kill me and stuff me and put me on his sofa like this is absolutely yeah. what's happening to me and I think it's... And obviously, we have a little bit of symbolism, obviously, Marion Crane. Yes. Wink. The birds. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we have this thing of, like, she's kind of, uh, you know, as she, uh, and she's quite bird-like in a way, in her kind of um, reserve and her kind of flitting from situation to situation. And then, of course, uh, you know, she uh, ends up in the bird cage, so to speak. She does. And then in the swamp. Hmm. I think what I do also want to highlight about that dialogue scene is like there is that bit where you know he has the uh, the famous quote that we all go a little mad sometimes. Uh, speaking of his mother, of course, um, saying you know uh, he puts up with her abuse because he you know, he knows she's a frail, sick old woman, right? Um, and you know he says like you'll, you'll have a you'll go mad a little mad sometimes. We'll have our moments. Haven't you ever done anything that you know you regret, sort of thing? Obviously, Marin's thinking about the money, and there's this almost kind of it is quite a touching scene between them, where he, you know, he kind of brings that out of her, and she kind of is like, "Yeah, I guess he's right. You know, we all have our moments. I should go back and make amends." And obviously, that never happens because because she of gets, she gets killed. mother's intervention. Yes, but no, I mean, it's like we were discussing earlier. Like Norman is the first man in the movie who is actually, you know, not a scumbag to her. Or is yeah. you know is not sort of leading her on. He's actually having a genuine conversation and seems interested in what she has to say until mm. he knifes her. Um, yes, yeah, no, yeah. I, 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 I like Norman a lot. And again, I really like him in the sequels as well. I think they the, the sequels do right by him as, as well, which I think again a lot of other slasher movie villains the sequels do them wrong. Um, mm. Particularly things like Freddy Krueger, who starts off very menacing and can 
like they, for the first couple of movies he remains menacing and then he just becomes a wisecracking joke machine um yeah gets camp later on it, like so camp. he becomes the wicked witch of the west in one of those fucking movies and it's just it's so ridiculous and so unnecessary and so betraying of the character but like i'd say across the four psycho movies there's never really a point where they do him dirty i think i think one thing that also kind of makes uh, norman compelling uh, both compared to those kind of 80s slasher movies, um, 80s and 90s, I guess, slasher movies that we've referenced, but also um, against the likes of, say, uh, Hannibal Lecter, is, you know, when you look at, like, Hannibal Lecter, he's this kind of, like, he's almost all-powerful, right? Like, he can do anything. He's yeah. got this incredible mind. He can escape any situation. He can manipulate anyone he wants. That's not really true of Norman, is it? Because no. as this movie goes on and we have um, the detective comes, the private detective comes along, he immediately sniffs out Norman's, you know, he doesn't quite figure out what's going on, but he immediately knows this kid's hiding something and gets, you know, shanked for his troubles. I mean, you just got to take one look in that taxidermy room and you'd fucking know, wouldn't yeah. you? <laughs> and when Marion and Sam's uh, sister turn up, the, you know, Sam finds it very easy to put pressure on Norman. And he's not being very yeah. subtle about it either. It's not like Sam's a master manipulator. He's just basically being like, because they obviously think he knocked her off for the money. Um, he's kind of saying like, ah, you want to escape from a place like this? Buy a better motel. <laughs> you know, he's not being uh, particularly subtle about it. And Norman is not covering up well either, which is kind of, I feel that was something that was really interesting because it kind of, A, it's something that we just don't see in media these days. Like these days are kind of psycho killers are, uh, you know, they're like Moriarty and Sherlock or the Hannibal Lecter. They're these very like manipulative, oh, they can they can make you think whatever you want. They're these almost satanic figures. Yeah, like omnipotent, omnipresent yeah. puppeteers who could literally do anything. And I mean, like that works for a character like Hannibal, particularly mm-hmm. in the TV series, you know, where he is essentially just the devil in car. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, it's, it's not saying one's better than the other. It's just kind of like yeah. the contrast is interesting. Because it also, I think, what's interesting about Psycho a subversion that people don't often talk about is the after. So obviously, you already have the initial subversion of Janet Lee gets bumped off thirty minutes in, and the rest of the movie is more about Norman trying to evade various uh, figures who are coming to seek justice for the murder. Um, what's interesting about that is it flips the dynamic of the typical Hitchcock suspense thriller on its head, where our villain is the one who's constantly having to avoid the law constantly. Yes. Yeah, and we're almost because obviously most of you know, think of like a North by Northwest or something yes. like that. Like the character you're following is constantly having to evade these people who are you know trailing them for the wrong reasons, or they've got themselves mixed up in a situation they shouldn't have. And that's the typical suspense thing is that you're watching an ordinary person or a relatively ordinary person try and you know unfuck a situation they're in. Right? Hmm. Whereas I think what's interesting about Psycho is it's Norman who's going through that. And obviously, to the 1960 audience, they don't know he's the killer, so they have this thing of, oh well, he, you know, he's covering up his mother's crimes. So that's why he's getting into this situation. Yeah. When you watch it with the fullness of time and the fullness of knowledge, it makes a very interesting watch, especially when we're thinking about it in terms of slasher movies, like the idea of this killer kind of being the one that we're almost asked to empathize with, and we're almost kind of. Mm. This ten- the tension is coming from, like, is he going to be found out? Yeah, and obviously we're kind of kept in suspense throughout this movie. I mean, obviously we're not because we know what happens. But the idea is that we're kept in suspense waiting to see Mother as well because we know, you know, we're led to believe that Mother is the killer. So we're waiting for that moment where we find out. And again, we have the really great subversion at the end where you see her corpse um, 
in the basement, which is again brilliant. Um, one thing I will say about Norman, though, as a as a killer, um, is like compared to a lot of the again like the other like sort of big movie psychopaths and serial killers who are like very powerful when it comes to their murders. Norman's very like subdued in a way, and like you know he attacks people when they're at the most vulnerable, or he surprises them. Like, when he kills mm. Arbogast, it's just, like, Arbogast is coming up the stairs, and he just comes out and attacks him. You know, like, it's yeah. not like, you know, he doesn't stalk his prey as much. He just very much waits for his moment and takes it when he can get it. And again, I think that's something else as well, where, like, there's, there's something a lot more human about that. It's not like, you know, yeah. Michael Myers, who can lift somebody up and impale them with a butcher knife, or Jason, who can literally rip somebody's head off with his bare hands. So this is just, like, a very human, very down-to-earth kind of killer. And again, mm. that's also ultimately quite terrifying as well. Yeah, I will say he has pretty advanced impressionist skills because he manages to convince several people that he's talking to his mother. That's one thing I want to flag up in this movie, and I get it's like a <laughs> filmmaking thing, but how the yeah. fuck is everybody able to hear those conversations so clearly from so far away? Like, Marion can full-on hear them bickering. I mean, my, my concern is more that Norman manages to sound like an elderly woman when he's talking to himself. I find that quite baffling, to be honest. I feel like that might pseudo a bit an influence on Black Christmas as well, where mm. the the killer in that movie talks in multiple different voices to themselves. Uh, you know, I'd like to think so. Although, you know, sadly Norman Bates never gets a line as good as "Let me lick your pretty pink cunt." So, no, they no. wouldn't have got that past the censors. No, but but fourteen years later, Black Christmas managed it. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, one thing we should say, so obviously, um, sp what, spoiler alert, Claxon. Um, yeah, Norman's the killer, shockingly. Who knew? Yeah, he killed his mother and her lover long ago, and uh, has been messing about with her corpse and her nylons ever since. Um, Who were? Uh... Yeah, God only, God only knows what goes on when there's not a fucking guest at the basement, that's all I'll say. Well, again, I, I want to also quickly point out at the beginning, uh, when Marion first arrives at the Bates Motel, you see the silhouette of Mother like very quickly walk yeah. past the window. Which, again, is whenever Norman refers to his mother as being frail, I'm like, well, clearly Marion should have been like, well, that's not fucking true, because she's like six foot tall mm. and was walking around the house. Um, <laughs> but what I love as well yeah. about that is that you know, Marion arrives and, you know, honks the horn to get the attention. And then Norman comes downstairs a few minutes later. So I love the fact that Norman was walking around the house with the wig on, dressed up as his mother, heard the honks and just sort of very quickly got undressed and came downstairs. Yeah. Like, just moments beforehand, he was just walking around the house as mother. I think that's quite a nice little touch. As one does. As um, one does. Yeah, doing the hoovering. Dress up as your dead mother. Flick yourself off watching this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Long story short, we should wrap up on Psycho. Um, the so Loomis and um, feels weird saying Loomis because I'm picturing Donald Pleasance. As as you uh, rightly should. Sam and um, Marion's sister manage to avoid being killed by Norman, but they find out his terrible secret. As you alluded to, he's got mother in the basement, and he's running around in her frock and nylon, stabbing people. <laughs> Um, As you do. I kind of find the, the, it's, in, it's interesting that the ending is kind of so anticlimactic because there's not yeah. really a big chase or anything. No. Norman just bursts out on, on um, Marion's sister and Sam just stops him. In the nicest possible way, Norman goes down like a bitch. Like, <laughs> he just kind of yeah. gets grabbed and, and just sort of screams on the floor a little bit. Yeah, it is very anticlimactic. And then we literally just cut to the police station and uh, Norman's, you know, under arrest, under evaluation by the psychiatrist. Who um, We should definitely, before we wrap up, we should talk about this fucking psychiatrist, right? 
Does he operate from a park bench? Because um, some of the conclusions that he's making are <laughs> fucking wild, right? Because, I mean, he's the one who reveals, you know, and this is kind of, this is the scene that Roger Ebert claimed uh, stops this movie from being truly perfect, is the scene where the psychiatrist for a good five or six minutes just monologues about Norman's psychological state, right? Trying to, you know, explain the movie. Because at this point, yeah. obviously, we know that he's killed the mother and the lover long ago, and it was out of jealousy. Um, according to the psychiatrist, Norman is a split personality between himself and his mental projection of his own mother, um, which may or may not be an accurate reflection of his mother. I've not seen Bates Motel. No. But, um, I mean, is, certainly... is Bates Motel canon, technically? Like, uh, I don't care. Um, <laughs> the... Um, <laughs> The yeah, so the whole thing is like he says, you know, he, he dresses up as his mother, and he's um, like the Norman side of his personality has basically been eroded by the mother side of his personality, and um, you know, the mother takes over whenever any you know whenever it wants, basically, and he kind of blames uh, Marion's death on the fact that Norman was attracted to her, and the mother got jealous and you know bumped her off for that reason. Um, but what I will say is this. The psychiatrist doesn't seem massively professional, but he does have a flair for the dramatic. Um, oh, yeah. I love it when he I love it when he comes in and they go, uh, "Did Norman kill my sister?" And he goes, "Yes," and "No." That's <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> I mean, it's it's, ter- it's yeah, it's terrible psychiatry, but it makes for good drama, of course. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on this fucking character? Because he's wild. Yeah, it makes for good drama, I agree, but like I have to agree with Ebert on this, and it's just something that personally speaking, as somebody who, you know, is you know, is a writer, essentially. Mm. It's one of the things I absolutely hate is when you get to the end of the movie and it's just a big exposition dump. It's just really quite lazy yeah. writing, and it stings especially in this film because up until this point it's actually a very, very well written film. And you just get this big exposition dump. I don't think this scene is necessarily poorly written, but yeah, I kind of agree that like I wish there'd been another way to do it without this like long monologue. But then we're looking at it from the point of view of like, a, you know, we live at a time where the culture is a little more focused on mental health. We might be able to make deductions from more implications. Yeah, this is this true. From, you know, they, they need to kind of be like, it's a split. I mean, they also feel the need to point out that Norman is not a transvestite, um, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> because in 1960, it's a bit like, okay, are they just being like, yeah, he's a maniac, but he's not gay. <laughs> That's Yeah, that, I always wondered if that was the implication there. It's just like, it's like, yeah, he kills people, but he doesn't shag men up the ass. Like, that's the thing to focus on here. I mean, it's a little, it, it kind of weirdly, actually, it recalls the Silence of the Lambs, right, where they take the time to be like, Buffalo Bill is not transgender, okay? He's just a maniac. Yeah. Um, but but in a way that is kind of uh, perhaps a little bit... Um, by modern standards, it doesn't really hold up. <laughs> uh, so that aside, um, the last thing I guess we could talk about is the last scene of the movie, which is Norman alone with his little shock blanket. Um, or is it Norman? Because we get the, the monologue of Mother, which is his internal thoughts. Um, which is something we actually see earlier on with with uh, Marion is that she runs through um, fictional conversations in her head quite a bit of like you know imagining what would happen when her when her disappearance is discovered when her theft is discovered and all this kind of thing. So it's interesting that it links back to that here where we get uh, Norman's mother 
well, Norman's projection of his mother speaking in his mind about like, oh, they know what kind of person I am. Well, they think they know what kind of person I am, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. Um, and obviously it ends on the great line of uh, the fly lands on his hand and she goes, I'm not even going to swap this fly. They're going to see what kind of person I am. I wouldn't hurt a fly. And mm. we get to Perkins giving the, the Kubrick stare. <laughs> Kubrick stare, complete with, and it's a really lovely little detail with the, the superimposed dead mother face. Mm. Just it is, it's, it's just subtle enough that it makes that very creepy scene that little bit creepier. Um, and I do also yeah, want to mention about this final scene as well, especially when we're looking at him, like how you because we've been comparing Norman to a lot of the later slasher villains. Um, usually in the slasher movies, like the killer either gets away, is seemingly killed, or is like trapped or something. In this, like Norman is just he's just institutionalized. Like he just gets caught. There's no big bloody battle against him. You know, he's not like seemingly killed. He's just caught by the police and incarcerated. Like that's it. Yeah. There's no. There's. It, it's almost like, again, like you say, like a little bit anticlimactic, really. Yeah, and I think the it's interesting that the chilling element comes from the realization of just how disturbed he is, rather than any like big battle or there's no yeah like you say there's no bit where you know he gets killed and then he disappears like Michael Myers or anything like that it's just the chilling thing is just the implication of like how a person a seemingly normal person could become so you know detached from normal morality I suppose and in that way it's kind of a um it's an interesting reflection of Marion right where she's a a normal person who you know, kind of falls into immorality, let's say. And the same is kind of true of Norman as well. Where it's like the circumstances kind of push him into this psychological mess that he is now, basically. Yeah. Um, but in his case, obviously, it's the reflection of, um, you know, we kind of said, like, Marion is uh, almost a woman, like, adrift in a man's world, kind of abandoned by the men in her life or mistreated in some ways. Even in small ways, like, you know, Sam ultimately is mistreating her by, you know, she feels dismissed by him at the very least. Um, yeah, I mean, he's well, getting what he wants from her and not having to put any mm. effort in, really. But then we have this reflection of Norman, who is, you know, by all by all appearances, a good, clean American boy, who, you know, is being he was abused by his mother to the point that he became this this creature that he is now. I guess, like, well, yeah, he's a victim of you know abuse and, and circumstance, whereas you know Marion is just. You know, she's just got kind of down on her luck and just hasn't really got her life together and just seizes an opportunity. And it's a very immoral thing that she does. But obviously she is about to sort of come back from the brink of it, whereas Norman's completely lost to his madness, really. Like, there's no going back for him. It's it's impossible. The thing that kind of struck me on this watch, speaking of looking at it through, through modern eyes, I think uh, Hitchcock does a very good job of, like, the psychiatrist... I. As much as we're kind of taking the piss of the psychiatrist, I do think there is an element where he's supposed to be ridiculous, right? Like he's giving you this very like because the the lines are very over dramatic of what he's giving. Like like I said, like the thing of yes, and also no, and I spoke with the mother and all this kind of stuff. Like he's very he's having it up. But I think he does a very good job of like that room where all the people that you know the cops and the doctors and the psychiatrists are sitting around talking about Norman in this very elevated way. And then you cut back to Norman alone and the stark reality of this 
person who's just completely, as you say, like lost to madness. I, I always find it weird in that scene as well. The psychiatrist, yeah, he's doing this big theatrical performance, but like he's telling Sam Loomis, like it's, it feels like he should be having this conversation with the, you know, just the police. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think the uh, what's her name, Leela, Lila, is that her name? Lila, her sister. Think, yeah. Lila, yeah. Like, Lila and Sam should not really be in that room, I don't think. No, absolutely not. <laughs> like, there's some ethical nightmares there. And it ties back to Norman's speech about the madhouse earlier on, right, where he talks about not just the insanity of the inmates, but the, the cruelty of the doctors looking in at them. And, like, yes, yeah, them. yeah. And you almost get this, it's a classic Hitchcock thing as well, of, like, almost turning it around on the audience and kind of being like, well, what have you been doing this entire time? You've been scrutinizing this character. You've been, you know, coldly regarding his every move and wondering whether he's going to get caught, maybe wanting him to get caught, maybe not. But either way, at the end of the day, you're just like the rest of these people in this room. You're just coldly observing this person who could have been helped, who didn't have to be what he is now. And um, yeah, and yeah. Whereas, like, you know, as slasher movies sort of go down the line, it's kind of become the opposite of that, where, you know, the the character that people go to see slasher movies for is the killer. We root for the killer. We don't root for, mm. you know, any of the survivors, really. Um, which I always find is one of those sort of interesting things about, like, and a lot, of, a lot of those movies do try and turn that back on the audience by kind of trying to judge them for what they're watching mm. and try to, like, make you feel bad for what you're doing. But ultimately, you know, like in the case of Psycho, the most interesting character is the one who's stabbing everybody. Yeah, but I think this movie also, you know, it has empathy for the victims as well because, yeah, you know, the obviously Marion is a sympathetic character, but also our detective. What's his name again? Arbogast. Arbogast. That's a great name. Arbogast is a fantastic name. I mean, we see that he's a very competent detective, but also we see that he's ultimately because when we first introduced him, he's quite um, antagonistic towards Sam because he suspects that Sam's either in on it or he did something right. But the yeah. minute that he gets another clue that sends him the other way, he's immediately like, oh, well, let's clear his name. He's a good, he's a good guy. You know, he, you know, he's not messed up. Yeah. He's not mixed up in all this. And he sounds glad to come to that realisation. And I think that's something that's really interesting, like the way that character kind of turns as you're watching him. Because you kind of, when you start off, you're like, oh, he's this blowhard private detective. He thinks the worst about everyone. But actually, he has these noble qualities where, as well, he can't just leave the Bates Motel alone. As soon as he's kind of, suspecting he's like actually I, I need to dig around a little deeper and ultimately that's what gets him killed yeah exactly but yeah it's an interesting thing where like i guess arbogast and marion both have these redemptive moments that kind of end up getting them killed so yeah. i'm not entirely sure what that is saying necessarily or if it's saying anything but it's just kind of like you know too little too late sort of situation I mean, over the years, people have like you know dug deep on this movie. There's the whole theory that the uh, the Bates house is representative of Norman's psyche, and like the different rooms of the house represent like you know the id and the ego mm. and all this kind of stuff, which I've always found interesting, but I've never fully ascribed to myself. I think it's it's mm. an interesting way of reading. It. I don't think it's as intentional as what some people say, um, but obviously with this being a psychological horror movie, there's definitely room for that kind of interpretation. Absolutely. Um, I think we've probably talked through all the things that we need to talk through on this one, really. Yeah, so let's get to uh, Kino or Inferno. It's kind of a no-brainer, really. It's, it's Kino, isn't it? How could it not yeah, be? Yeah, I mean, we weren't going to Inferno fucking psycho, were we? No, like, what do you expect from us? Like, we know mm. the filthy sluts are listening, and 
I know they, they like want us to drama. be spicy. They want drama. Yeah. They want drama. They want us to be controversial, but we're not going to do it because it's Psycho, and Psycho is brilliant, and you should definitely watch it. If you haven't watched it, why the fuck have you been listening to us for the last hour? Yeah, I mean, if if you're a you know an aspiring filmmaker, I think Psycho is, is a must. Really, like. Oh, for sure, for it, sure. It's such a masterclass in just kind of tension and just constantly building tension. And I think the thing about it being an anticlimax that we've kind of said, and we you know we have a few critical points here and there. I think the anticlimax actually make, means that the tension doesn't break in some ways. No, because yeah, I agree. I think if there'd been this big fight or this big shootout or this big whatever, eventually that would come to its climax and that'd be that. I think what's interesting about that ending that we've spoken about, especially when you get that scene of Norman, you know, just clearly like just sitting still with his shock blanket, completely consumed by the mother personality. Like, there's no resolution for this guy. This is just yeah. like. <laughs> This is well, just what he that is lingering now. fear, isn't it? It's knowing that he's mm. completely lost, and there's just there's no real there's no way he can redeem himself because you know up until the reveal, and even though we obviously know it's Norman, but like imagine I'm trying to view this from like the audience of the sixties perspective. Like mm. it's easy to sympathise with Norman, and imagine it must have been fairly surprising to learn that he was the one killing people because you know up until this point he seems like a, a stand up guy. He's a bit of a weirdo. And mm. I definitely wouldn't. Well, I don't know about a standard guy. Bird. He did. Uh, well, you know what I mean. Did, like he's. He did clear uh, up his mother's murders. <laughs> true, but I think you know he's got good values at least. Not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he's not a fucking snitch. That's the main thing. Yeah, I think like you know he, he like we've said he's a very much a sympathetic character, and I think mm. you know that subversion that he was actually the one you know like, like you say dressing up in his mother's nylons and possibly having a shifty. I think. Oh, definitely having a shifty. He was definitely wanking in his mum's pants, wasn't he? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All her clothes just reek of jankum. <laughs> the Bates house just stinks of cum. <laughs> so, that is, it's a wank prison if ever I saw one. <laughs> so, Psycho, certified Kino. <laughs> yeah, obviously Kino. Um, shall we move on to Master film? Bates Motel, am I right? Hey, pap, pap, pap. <laughs> Let's move on. Should we move on to film two? Um, we we should, otherwise we're just going to keep talking about cum. Yes, and maybe we should stop talking about cum, bearing in mind the Soviet matter of the next film. Let's hear a clip! She was too beautiful to play with boys and too young to play with men. So Alice began to play with death. She's made repeated requests that the kids see a psychiatrist. She has a knack of making things look like accidents. Set against the most Catholic backdrop ever put to film, Alice Sweet Alice is a psychological stalk and slash film that follows the questionable exploits of Alice, a 12-year-old girl who becomes the prime suspect when her younger sister Karen is murdered on the day of her first communion. Her mother is quick to jump to her aid, but everyone else around her isn't so sure. Good summary there, Mark. Thank you, thank you. Very brief one. I mean, I feel kind of bad about my summary now because your summary of Psycho was very detailed. <laughs> I gave you four lines. I gave you two measly poots of cum, whereas you shot all the beans. Well, you know what they say about uh, podcast summaries, right? Like It reflects um, how the speaker makes love. Um, you know, you're to the point. But I am very... short, sharp, and to the point. Whereas I like to take my time. We haven't got time in the modern era for this slow lovemaking nonsense. 
get in, get out, get done. You know me, I'm old. I'm old school. I'm like Barry White. <laughs> I know you're on. You're on grinder getting a quick gum deposit, <laughs> but I'm out there. I'm out there pleasing the home. Wow! Wow! <laughs> Just. Um, on that bombshell, should we, discuss this, should we discuss this movie about child child murder and abuse? <laughs> we should. <laughs> so this film is about Catholicism, if you couldn't tell, mm. due to the themes. Um, getting spicy already. Uh, no, so this is Alice Sweet Alice, um, also known as Communion, also known as Holy Terror, which are two interesting titles i do like communion as a title actually I've, I've i actually do but i think alice sweet alice definitely fits that slasher vibe a little bit better um so this movie was made in 1974 written and directed by alfred soul it's kind of the only really notable thing of his career from what i'm aware of i know that the film he did before this was porn i believe okay which uh would go some lengths to explaining some of this film's content um as you listeners are aware, we did put a little content warning at the start of this episode because it's, you know, the kind of thing that should be done. Uh, because this film talks about some pretty heavy shit and yeah. has some very untold content. There's some stuff in this movie. There is. Um, so in typical Kino Inferno fashion, Aiden had never seen this film before. I'd seen it a few times. So I'm going to immediately just sort of pass it over to him because I want to know your thoughts on this because you gave me a little bit off camera you gave me an indication of what you thought of this film but you didn't give me the goods i've been in suspense for the last day or so and i'm curious to know what you thought of it see uh i handle this in the same way i make love i like to take my time <laughs> now, um so yeah i had never seen this film before i'd heard of it because um well i know you'd recommended it uh, before um, but also various, you know, horror sites and stuff. Uh, it's got a real underground following this. And if you're into your horror, this is a movie that will eventually come up, especially if you're into your, your older horror, right? Um, so, yeah, well, you know, when you recommended this for the um, Prieto Slashes episode, I was certainly intrigued to watch it. Um, I will say my thoughts on the movie are a little... Um, they're a little um. That's what I'll say. Um, I'm not entirely sure that I love or hate this movie. Um, it's it's certainly going to be interesting to discuss. I mean, if you wanted me to give my first blush of this, it's okay. very um, it's very slow, and there are certainly points where I lost a little bit of interest. That said, there are many many scenes of deplorable shit happening um and if that's the kind of thing that holds your interest then you know there, there is plenty of that peppered throughout um i think this is probably a more interesting film to talk about mm. than it is to watch i think it's kind of my um initial thoughts but again i've only seen this the first time for the first time uh, last night um it's interesting to me that you're not entirely sure what to make of this one because i felt like there might have been certain stuff in this film that you might have latched onto a little bit more um Especially the whole sort of just dripping in Catholicism stuff. I was curious to know what you'd make of that. Well, um, you know, I, I love me some Catholicism, but um, <laughs> it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this thing about this movie is... Um, I, I get you're right. It is kind of, There's a lot of symbolism, a lot of imagery, 
uh, around Catholicism, you know, we cut to several uh, crucifixes and images of Jesus at various points. And obviously the whole thing revolves around um, communion and stuff like that. I'm just not sure it has all that much to really say about the imagery that it's using. It kind of just seems to be kind of going, and this is my take anyway, having only seen it for the first time, maybe on a repeat viewing I might be able to dig into it a bit more. But um, certainly on on the first blush, I kind of felt like um, it's not really saying anything all that meaningful about Catholicism apart from like, hey, Catholic stuff's kind of creepy, right? Um, <laughs> a bit culty. Yeah, it's like, um, yeah, sure. You could do that with pretty much any religion though. Um, I'm not sure it has yeah, all that think... much to say about the faith that it's basing the movie around, I guess. Which, if you compare it to something like The Exorcist, which I think, uh, you know, um, just kind of a similar time, I guess, to The Exorcist. Um, yeah, same, same year, yeah, maybe. Whereas I think that is a movie that is actually, it's not just using Catholic imagery, although there's Jesuits and stuff in that, it gets confusing. But um, they are. You know, they're actually talking about like what it means to have faith and like the dark side of faith versus, you know, the more positive aspects. Whereas I think this movie just kind of wants to be like, hey, Catholic stuff's kind of creepy, right? And, you know, that's fine. Like, I'm, <laughs> yeah, not, you know, I'm not necessarily suggesting that makes a movie bad. It's just, you know, I don't know that it has anything particularly um, original or that deep to say about it, really. No, I think I'm I'm with you on that. I, th- I don't think this movie is trying to make any kind of points about Catholicism. It's definitely attacking it, and it, the you know Alfred Soul clearly has an issue with mm. Catholicism because, especially when you look at the murder scenes in this movie, especially the the first scene in which yeah, young Karen is strangled and then put inside an ottoman and burnt alive, which is a hell of a way to start a fucking film. Yeah, like, so we should say Karen played by the only actor I recognised in this movie, which is Brooke Shields. Yes. Um, <laughs> and after Brooke Shields became a big success, this movie had a couple of re-releases where they were sort of really, mm. you know, tacking on the fact that she was in this, even though she's only in it for about 15 minutes before she gets very Yeah, and I'll say, I, I uh, rented this movie from Mr. Jeff Bezos, and the trailer that plays, uh, if, if you watch the trailer, literally one of the lines that the voiceover says is, Brooke Shields, as you've never seen her before, which... <laughs> Led me to believe that Brooke Shields would be Alice, right? Would be the lead character. But um, that is not the case. She is knocked off within the first 10 minutes. I mean, it is Brooke Shields as we've never seen her before, burnt alive in a coffin. Yeah, it's kind of, in a way, it kind of had a, a Janet Lee effect on me uh, watching this one because I was like, oh, right, fuck, I guess she's just not in this movie. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, we should, you know what, Mike, I think you should take us through the plot, because you've seen this a few times. I have, yes. And to me, um, uh, definitely there were a few points in this movie where I was like, sorry, who is this again? Like, what's their relationship? <laughs> like, what's going on here? Uh, like that, you know, it took a little while for me to fully, um, I mean, helpfully, as I texted you as I was watching it, helpfully, anyone who is, uh, any, any sisters who appear in this movie have the same hairstyle. So that you can, that you can piece <laughs> together pretty quickly. That's very true. Yeah, like uh, so. Yeah, essentially, um, the the protagonists of this movie. You've got young Alice, uh, who's played by Paula Shepard, who is supposed to be twelve years old. Paula Shepard was eighteen when they made. Was this she? Movie. That's interesting. 
she yeah she was 18 uh she turned 19 during the production actually and there is definitely in the blu-ray you can tell a lot okay. more because they've cleaned up the picture somewhat and there's definitely like shots where you can see like the bags under her <laughs> eyes kind of thing you're like, you're like oh that's someone who's not been sleeping much that's somebody who might have actually started drinking and smoking pot you know right sure um, sure and due to the content in this movie as well, like you can understand why yeah, they chose an eighteen-year-old. It's the actress. responsible thing to do. I will say, um, I watched this in standard definition because Bezos didn't uh, fork out for the Blu-ray. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 couldn't, I, I couldn't tell from looking at her that she was she was eighteen. But definitely her speaking voice. I was like, have they dubbed this this girl in with an older actress? Yeah, no. She's yeah, she was eighteen when they did it. She was a, apparently she was a college student at the time of the production. Right, right. And again, it, it like I say, it's the responsible thing to do given some of the very disturbing things that happen in this movie with that character. Yeah, because I will say um, there's a scene, we'll get to it later on, but there's a scene where she um, narrowly avoids a, a molesting. And I was kind of like, uh, Jesus fucking Christ, I hope that, that you know, what... Because, you know, 70s... Uh, they were a lawless wasteland. You know, this was the same year that we had... Uh, you know, Reagan masturbating with a crucifix. Was it the same year? Was X to 74? Possibly. Maybe later. Let's find out, because as we always say, we never do any research. Also, um, you know, without mean 73, it was the year previous. Without meaning, without meaning to be too uh, grim, you know, this movie stars Brooke Shields, someone who uh, definitely got Hollywooded. Let's just say that. Yes. At a young, at a young age. Um, yeah. Yeah, Indeed. so, um, you know, Indeed. there was a part of me watching some of these scenes with, with Alice where I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, like, knowing that she was, uh, you know, at least uh, of age when she was doing this stuff is, uh, it makes my butthole unclench a little bit. <laughs> Just to be like, at least she's old enough to understand what she's doing, you know. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I Yeah, it is a responsible thing to do, and I'm glad that Alfred Soule did do that, and managed to cast an actress who you could believe was, you know... I mean, I don't know if 12 years old. I don't know if I believe that she's 12. No, but, no, but um, the way they have her made up, she looks about, like, 14, 15, believably. Yeah, she 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 looks the part, which is, is handy. Um, So Alice, who is supposed to be 12 years old, is, for lack of a better word, um, she's a little cunt. Uh, that's how <laughs> I would describe her. <laughs> um, yes. She delights in pranking people. She has a thing about putting on scary masks to not only scare her sister, but scare other people. Um, she likes to steal her sister's dolls so she can rip them apart because she's just, she's just a little cunt. Yeah, um, and obviously, and, you know, that's the kind of early signs that this character is uh, troubled. And, um, you know, maybe uh, has had some, some and bad so things happen to her. And so, basically, at the start of the movie, we see Alice torturing young Karen because that's just one of her favourite things to do. Um, and uh, Karen's first communion is coming up, which is a big event in the family. Um, it's also worth pointing out as well that the sort of the. Other than Alice, the other protagonist uh, is Catherine, who's played by Linda Miller. She's Alice and Karen's mother. And she is divorced. And it's also then spoken about later in the movie that her uh, her and her ex-husband, they had Alice out of wedlock. Yes. So obviously that's very, you know, that's a big, big old no-no in the Catholic world. You know, you shouldn't be doing that. And so uh, the dad is not really in the picture. So Catherine's a single mother with two, uh, two daughters. Harlot. And obviously, you know, harlot. She's a, she's a harlot. She's a Marion Crane. She's a KFB. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
you know, she's very much living a life that is not acceptable to those around her, but she still has the support of her other family members, her sister, Annie, uh, who is... Uh, that actress makes some choices. We'll get yeah, into you want to talk about but, a total um, cunt. Annie's a total cunt. She, I think she means well, but she's a total cunt. Every, a lot of people in this movie are total cunts, to mm. be fair. Um, but so Karen's first communion is coming up, and uh, so essentially what happens here is um, they're very close with Father Tom, uh, who is a like, you know, local priest. Uh, he gives uh, Karen a crucifix uh, to celebrate her first communion. This ticks Alice off, and Alice you know, goes and does her usual cunty little shtick. Um, <laughs> Can we stop calling a 12-year-old girl a cunt, please? <laughs> well, if she wasn't... <laughs> I just feel like maybe okay, that's okay. a line we've crossed there. Twat, maybe. Twat is fine. <laughs> So on the first day of communion, um, Karen is attacked by somebody in a yellow raincoat and a very creepy translucent mask who strangles her, puts her in an ottoman, and just burns her alive. And Alice is seen leaving the room after this event has supposedly happened. So everybody, knowing what Alice is like, suspects that she has committed the murder. And, you know, you can kind of see why. Um, and then from there, like, you have everybody starting to suspect Alice. Um and you start to see a little bit more of like her sort of devious ways in the sense that in like the apartment building that they live in, she has all these like knickknacks and things that she's stolen. You can see how she likes to taunt their landlord, Alfonso, who we definitely... Hang on, we'll, we'll put a pin out. in that because some, there's some <laughs> stuff going on there. Um, yeah, certainly Alice kind of craves attention and uh, gets it by any means that she can, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, uh, because obviously, you know, there's a degree of emotional neglect that's happening in her life. and you know, Yeah, a, a degree or two, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> Just a smidge of the old neglect, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of that kind of stuff happening. So Alice is clearly very troubled and everyone suspect, well, people start to suspect that she's done the murder. Alfonso, for example, is very much like, you definitely killed your sister. Mm. Like, he full-on suspects her. And... Uh, her auntie Annie, who oh my god, I am I, transfixed by this woman's performance in this film. It's it's wild. It's you know it's the aunt from Sleepaway Camp levels. Yeah, of it's kind of it's it's bad acting taken to such a degree that it kind of becomes incredible acting. As in, it's it's literally not credible. Yeah, all of the acting in this movie is really overdone. I think, yes. like you know, there's. The way that this movie portrays Catholics is that everybody is just overly hysterical about literally everything. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. But, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, certainly there's, um, <laughs> yeah, there's some, some choice performances. Uh, but we should also say that one of the key elements of why Alice becomes a suspect is that she was uh, jealous of um, the other sister. What she, what's the younger sister called? Karen. Karen. Um, she was quite jealous of Karen and um, was acting up around the communion in general because it's implied anyway because Karen was getting more attention than her, right? Like that's part of it. Yeah, she and uh, you know, she even like steals Karen's veil, and after Karen's murder, uh, Alice herself steps out to have to well, to receive communion. Um, so a lot of people start to suspect her again, particularly her aunt Annie, who moves in with Catherine and and Alice to try and help support her after you know Karen's death. Not that many people seem that cut up about Karen's death. I'm just throwing that yeah, out there. Everyone kind of yeah. moves past it quite well, considering how gruesome it is. Well, their mum has a, has, a, has a couple of hours of looking a bit sad. Um, so Aunt Annie gets attacked by 
the person in the raincoat and the translucent mask gets stabbed uh, several times in the in the legs uh, on the mm. staircase in what's a really harrowing scene. Oh, uh, we um, should say as well, we mentioned Father Tom and that set of characters. Yes, yeah, so I will I'll sort of breathe into that as well. So Father Tom is the sort of local priest. Um, he lives in a house where there's Mrs. Tredoni, who is the housekeeper. She looks after him, and she also is looking after is the Monsignor, yes, I believe. Yes, yeah, it's an older priest. Yeah, who's wheelchair bound, and it's implied he's possibly got dementia, and he come, you know, he can't even feed himself. So Mrs. Tredoni looks after Father Tom and looks after the Monsignor. Oh, and we should say Mrs. Tredoni is definitely Italian. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> Aggressively Italian. <laughs> um, uh, her, I, I mean, I, I don't think the actress is Italian because her accent is like, "Hey, you come to me, you come to me, It's borderline offensive. Just yeah, like, like what I'm doing there, listeners, is actually a little understated versus what, what's in the movie. <laughs> hey, why you know it your food, but signore, you fucking twat, can't hey, you little bitch. Eh? <laughs> also, can we just address as well? Mrs. Tredoni has a fucking wide arm for Father Tom. In that, oh, yeah, she's, like, so horny for him. In that confessional scene later on, where he's been like, you're a good person, she's like, I am so weird day for you. <laughs> like, she's definitely having a little fiddle whilst he's saying that she's a she's good like person. She's, like, writhing around in the confessional booth, like, ah, ah. <laughs> it's crazy. This is a really lurid movie. I think, mm. like, we've... If, if you haven't got that impression from us talking about it, this is a lurid film. Oh, this is an absolute um, trash fest, mate. It's a trash fest. It's, yeah, and it's, it's really interesting to me as well because, like, whenever this movie gets brought up in discussions, like, scholars and critics are always, like, especially the ones that like it are very much like, it's a very sort of sophisticated kind of film. Like, is it fuck? No, sophisticated <laughs> is not the word I would use for this movie. This film is grotty as fuck. Yeah, and and it's, not even, it's not even filmed in a particularly sophisticated way. Like, that's the thing. It's no, like, it's... I mean, this was considered a video nasty in this country, and uh, I think I broadly agreed, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it is an unpleasant one watch but scuzzy, honestly that's I'd one of the scuzzy that's and again i think that's one of the reasons i quite like it because it's for its time as well like similar to how we we're talking about psycho like this was pushing it for 74 mm. like this film has uh, got some questionable shit in it um so yeah deeply um yeah just just yeah. finish off the plot and we'll kind of get into yeah the... so essentially um annie is attacked by the the killer in the mask um and in the hospital in one of the most overacted scenes in all of history claims that alice is the one that's done it so alice gets sent to a psychiatric institution for evaluation and then um after that, um, Alice's estranged father comes back and he starts to like look into what might be happening. Uh, before long, he receives a phone call, which he believes is from his niece, who is Annie's uh, daughter, who is sort of a character, but not really. Like They try to sort of palm off that she could be responsible for the murders, but that doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, their dad, whose name is Dominic, I believe. I just need to double check yeah, that. Yeah, Dom, I think they say, yeah. Yeah, Dominic, yeah. So he receives a phone call, supposedly from his niece, um, saying that he, she need, he needs to come and meet her because you know, she's got something to tell him. Uh, he goes I, to I meet... I want to flag up this scene real quick and just say that although Dom is an uncle, he is not meeting the criteria for the League of Uncles, I'm afraid. No, he doesn't do anything nearly heroic enough because he, he accepts that phone call, goes to, you know, where he's told to meet, uh, sees the killer is there, you know, because this killer has a very distinctive look. 
um, is then killed by said killer. And it's in this scene where the killer is unmasked and we find out that obviously it's not Alice because, you know, not only is she a 12-year-old girl and this killer is clearly, you know, more than four foot five <laughs> and capable of murder. Yeah, that's, you know? that's one of the elements of this film that's the most bullshit. They keep, they keep suspecting <laughs> these, like, little girls of being murderous. But it's, like, clearly, like, a fully grown woman. <laughs> A good couple of heads taller than all of the girls suspected. Yeah, like even when you, because you, you see the killer a lot, mm. like just walking around in daylight and stuff in the costume. So it's, you know, it's not exactly, they're not as subtle. Uh, but we learn in that scene that Mrs. Tredoni, the housekeeper, is the killer. And, you know, she's, her sort of reasoning is, you know, she's very much kind of lost her faith because she lost her own daughter at one point and she sees the Monsignor's failing health and she sees Catherine and Alice and Karen as, you know, this dysfunctional, dissolving family that are part of this, like, Catholic church that she's a part of mm. and she sees Catherine as being a whore and she's trying to, you know, she's trying to rectify that and trying to make it so, the sort of purity again within their community, which is, you know, just essentially she's a religious wacko. Yeah. That's kind of the long and short of it, really. Um, so Mrs. Tredoni is, we find out that she's the killer. She kills Dominic. She bashes his head in a couple of times with a rock and then chucks him out of a window. <laughs> yes. It's a wild murder. It's, yeah, I mean, all of the murders in this movie are quite wild. There's only, again, there's scarce few of them. There's not that many, but they're pretty fucking wild. Um, so Mrs. Tredoni then goes to visit Father Tom, uh, <laughs> which... Yes. Riding around in the confessional booth and going, oh, I have got seen the father. It's so good. <laughs> My pussy is so wet for you, father. <laughs> yeah, she has this scene of like confessing. Like, well, she's confessing, but not confessing because yeah. she's kind of skirting around the fact that she, you know, she's murdered a bunch yeah, of people. Yeah, she's like, I had anger in my heart. The senor, yeah, like he pisses on me off. Yeah, it's saying it, but not saying it. Um, so after her confession, not confession, uh, Mrs. Tredoni goes to Catherine's apartment in full killer regalia, may I point out. Not so. She is literally just standing at the doorway with the knife. Like, I, I don't know what her plan was here. Like, was Catherine just going to open the door? She was just going to stab her? Like, it's... Yeah, I think that's, that's the extent of her plan. Yeah, like, she, again, she's not a, a particularly clever murderer, really. Like, yeah. again, she's kind of like Norman Bates. She just kind of spring attacks people, which is nice. Um, so, Mr. Stadoni finds that uh, Catherine's not there, mm. uh, but then bumps into Alfonso, who rightly gets stabbed up, yes, as he should. Yes, Because the one thing, we, uh, we should just mention this now, one thing we glossed over about Alfonso, um, first of all, he, he's a very overweight gentleman. I say gentleman, he's not a gentleman. No, he's a right wrong. He's covered in piss and sweat and God knows what. Um, and is a child molester. This is something that we kind yep. of... We talked around earlier, but let's just fucking bring it up now. Um, yeah, he goes to molest Alice. Not Yeah, Alice. I was getting confused with who's yeah, yeah. He goes to molest uh, Alice at one point um, because he's being like, oh, yeah, you did the crime and the police are going to come. You better be nice to me kind of thing. And she's like, rightfully so fuck off you creep yeah like get um, away from me you piss soaked pervert but then she yes um, but then she <laughs> mentions like she goes like, oh you won't do that to me again so it's like implied that you know this is yeah. going on for some time um 
I mean, I don't really know what the dynamic with Alfonso is supposed to be. He's like the landlord of the building they live in, right? Is the... He is, right. yeah. And you kind of get the implication that he's been good to Catherine in the sense of like letting her right, live in that right. house. I, I feel like that's not explored in as much detail as it should be. Yeah, because he has a and... very weird dynamic with, with that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, weird is putting it mildly, right? I mean, he's a yeah, he's, master, but... yeah, he's definitely either molested her previously or has been incredibly inappropriate to her previously yeah because we also see um, early on that he like tries to boss her around and shit like he's like i'll oh, go to the shops for me and stuff yeah and it's very peculiar he has like 10 cats or something that's too many cats it's too many cats like i have two cats and that's 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 yeah, the two limit. cats is safe but 10 cats nuns uh, and it's also worth pointing out that in the, the, the version of the movie that i've always seen is the uncut version mm. and in the uncut version that's where you see alice uh, when Alfonso tries to get upon her, uh, she grabs one of his kittens and it, she breaks its neck. Yeah, that, it that's, away in the, that's in the, uh, the the version I watched as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a very shocking moment. Um, yeah, it's pretty fucking crazy. Yeah, and it's this, the effects are pretty good. Like, it looks like a genuine cat that she kills. Which yeah, uh, it's that. So that's a scene just for anyone keeping score where our young, I guess, protagonist. Uh, almost gets molested and then instead murders a cat in front of a potential molester's face. So that kind of tells you about this this movie's uh, fucking vibe, I guess. Scuzzy is the word. It's real grotty, isn't mm. it? Like, it's such grot. Um, but essentially, to round off the plot, because we've sort of gone all over the map on this movie, mm. which uh, is to be expected, I feel like the psycho discussion was a lot more... Um... <laughs> What's yeah. the word? Structured. Well, that's a real movie, man. That's the thing. This... <laughs> this is a real movie, okay? Did you not just listen back to the what you said about this film? The, the scene you just described. It's, no, it's a series of grotty incidents barely strung together by a plot of this film. I mean, isn't that just any film that we've ever written together? Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Go on, you were saying, the, the summation, the... the uh, yeah, so uh, Mr. Shadoni, uh, after going to Catherine's apartment to try and kill her and finding that she's not there, and killing Alfonso because Alfonso comes out on the stairs and sees her, um, she goes to the church, and she, her identity is discovered because there are police officers that have been sort of, you know going around the area and they've been obviously keeping an eye on like Catherine and Alice and stuff like that. So Mr. Stradoni does get spotted by a police officer and he obviously tells everybody else that it's Mr. Stradoni that's the killer. Um, so they have to think about how they can trap her and they know that she'll go to church yeah. because like that's just, you know, she will, she just, she has to go to church because you know, she's devout. Father Tom hatches his plan saying like, get her to come to the church and we'll start to give out communion and like, she will come to me and I will, you know, that's when I can sort of bring her to you is during mm. communion, which is a hell of a plan. Yeah, I, I don't see any police force in the world agreeing to this, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so some bullshit. Mrs. They just be like, you know, we can just kick down the door, right? Like, it's, yeah. <laughs> we don't have to have this elaborate setup. We're the police. And so Mrs. Stradoni goes to church, as they expected, and uh, when they start giving out the communion... I must take a communion from Father Tom. It is like I am tasting his appeals. It's, yeah, it's pretty much that, yeah. Um, it's amazing that she's trying to wipe out all the sinners in the community, but she's just frothing for Father Tom. Like, yeah. she wants to do some sin in herself. I think that's why she's knocking people off. She reckons she can probably score some tallies, and then she can have a bit of a ride on Father Tom. I kill for the God, so he will let me a fuck at the priest. <laughs> 
I, I love how you were chastising me for calling a 12-year-old a cunt, but that accent you're doing is just so offensive. <laughs> what is offensive about my accent? <laughs> anyway, the ending of this movie, the ending of this movie. Um, so Mrs. Tredoni goes to kneel down to take the communion and Father Tom denies her it and sort of whispers in her ear, you need to come with me, the police are here. And then Tredoni has a full-on meltdown. Yeah, she goes she's mental, like, mate. She's like, how, you know, you give the communion to the whore over there, pointing um, at Catherine. Mark, Catherine being Mark, like, well, you're describing dialogue given by Tredoni and you're not doing the voice. <laughs> You don't give it to the whore. <laughs> you will give it to communion to the whore. You do not give it to me. But like it's screech. Like her dialogue is screeched. Yeah, it's yeah. you know, it's it's quite the performance, as all the performances in the movie are. Um, and very attacked. And so uh, because obviously she has this massive meltdown, um, Tridoni then pulls out her fucking knife and slits Father Tom's throat in the middle of the church. And as he bleeds out, she hugs him. And there's this amazing shot of just the blood pouring out over her yellow raincoat, which is just wonderful. The blood is and- like a decom. Uh, <laughs> I wanted a jangum, but I get the blood instead. You put the blood upon my face like a cup. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> You started this, okay? Don't be fucking coming at me, okay? <laughs> no, I just... Why do we say these things? I, I don't know, mate. This is the thing. Like, we will never make money off this. <laughs> like, honestly, honestly, mate, this show is like a collection of evidence. I know. <laughs> I, do some, I do sometimes wonder about if we're ever going to be in a situation where we're in court and they're going to play back episodes of this show. <laughs> Clearly, this matter unhinged. <laughs> Case in point. <laughs> Uh, but at the very end of the movie is uh, Tridoni slits Father Tom's throat. He bleeds out in this... And whilst the fucking church just watches, like, everybody's just stood there watching this happen. Um, and then Alice, clearly very disturbed by what's happened, picks up the bag that Tridoni carries her, like, mask and uh, knife and stuff in. And she just kind of walks away uh, from the carnage, puts the knife in the bag, and then just does the... Almost like the very best creepy child stare into the camera. Yeah, what is going the, on there? This is something that I didn't quite grasp about the ending because is the ending trying to be like, ah, oh, now she is going to do some murders. Yeah. Or what? I've I've never interpreted it as she's going to be doing some murders. I think it's just kind of a way of being like, Alice is truly screwed at this point. Like, she's just so traumatized. Mm. Like, there's kind of no going back at this stage. Like, she's just, yeah... Yeah, she could do some murders. She might not, but yeah, I think it's just to be a bit like, you know, they may have created a monster well and truly. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Because the thing is, well, I don't know if we did we mention this that um, for a section of this movie, Alice gets sectioned. She does, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did mention that. Earlier. Yeah, okay, so sure. she's absent from the movie when her dad is murdered by Mrs. Tredonia. Right, right, right. And there's a lot of stuff there where you find out that Alice was hiding from her mum the fact that she was menstruating, for example. Yes, um, which uh, comes back to sort of... Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on there. Yeah, and that whole section of the movie is something that I wanted to flag up because it's just like... The problem with this... I guess the problem I have with this movie, uh, just knowing what to make of it wise, is there are moments of this that are like kind of ridiculous and lurid and kind of Jallo-esque. I mean, a lot of people say this is like an American Jallo, right? Um, yeah, that's a very common yeah. um, critique of the movie, yeah. Um, you know, and there's some very like over-the-top stuff and there's some hammy acting and some violence and stuff. But then there's this stuff in the movie where it's like, 
oh yeah, this little girl's getting molested by uh, there's nothing that anyone could do about it because that's her landlord. Or it'd be like, oh, and oh look, now she's being sectioned. And all the psychiatrists are like, hey, you should let her stay here. You shouldn't try and take her. And the parents are like, no, well, fuck you. We do what we want. And it's like, it seems a little like there's two tones kind of wrestling with each other in this movie. Because I was a bit like, this is just making me very sad. Like, this is just a sad film about and I know I've, a little I've girl who's been up. failed by everyone around her. I mean, I've, I've, I've brought this film up time and time again on the show, and I will continue to bring it up mm. until we eventually cover it. But, like, one film that I would compare this to in terms of its tone is... Uh, it reminds me a lot of something like Sleepaway Camp, where the overall presentation is quite hammy and the mm. acting is, you know, <laughs> broad, to say the least. Yeah. Um, would... But the horror elements are very stark in comparison. I would say, though, that Sleepaway like, Camp is kind of insane throughout. Like, there's... Yeah, like this movie, like I said, it kind of has this ebb and flow to it. Where the problem is, you're kind of sitting in these scenes that are quite grim, and it's like, oh, I don't know about this. Whereas Sleepaway Camp, it has some grim shit in it, but it's like it all cracks along at such a bizarre pace, and you know the dialogue is consistently ridiculous as well. So it's kind of. I know, think if I had to compare it though, that's what I do. Where like you know you've got this kind of like weird heightened. Uh, tone to it but then whenever the horror comes in it's very stark and very grim and very brutal mm. um, which you know again is juxtaposed against scenes of people just playing it to the back row when they're inside pokey little apartments yeah, so it's, yeah. like Annie again is just overacting to the nth degree like her hospital scene is just I don't even know how to describe it yeah it's deranged <laughs> I guess what I would say is like, okay, I guess my question for you is like, what is it about this movie that you think, well, A, that, that you personally enjoy and B, that you think is like why it's held up as, um, you know, this kind of cult favourite, this kind of, this this thing that you must see if you're into your, your slashes and your horror and everything. I think there's a few things to talk about. I think first thing I'll obviously mention is the sort of slasher elements because, you know, that's what we are initially here to talk about. Um, so, one, I love the design of the killer. I think the yellow raincoat and the translucent, like, makeup mask. I don't know what you call that kind of mask. It has a specific name, but I'm not sure what it is. Mm. Um, but I think that look is incredible. It's very creepy. It's memorable. It's obviously cribbing from Don't Look Now, and um, yeah. Alfred Soul has said um, on record that he definitely lifted the whole raincoat thing from Don't Look Now. And if you are going to borrow from another horror movie, you might as well borrow from a truly brilliant one like that. Um, so I love the design of the killer. I think whenever there is like the sort of scenes of violence and murder, they are really quite shocking in a way. Like um, I always find the murder scenes in this movie really quite unpleasant, mm -hmm. which I can't say of a lot of movies. Um, call me, you know, scuzzy or whatever. The, the genuinely lurid tone of the movie is always something that I find kind of appealing um, just because I like lurid movies. Because um, yeah, there's a real sort of like, perversity to this movie i guess and it for its time as well like you didn't see a lot of films like this this is a very angry movie i think yeah i'm not sure what it's really angry about though i mean the thing is that what i was kind of latching on to as the sort of narrative um drive i mean i know people always talk about the catholicism element of this movie uh, especially with regard to the kind of theme of like uh, child abuse and stuff that happens and all that kind of thing. Um, to me, though, like I say, I didn't really have anything that, to say about Catholicism that was all that interesting. 
I think what I would have preferred is that the movie was about was more focused on Alice and this idea of like all the people around her have kind of contributed to her, you know, becoming this like antisocial misfit basically. Which the movie definitely does, but then also there's long stretches of this, of this movie that are about her dad being a detective for some reason. Which, yeah, uh, that yeah. comes out of nowhere. I think that I don't know kind of where you're going with this, but like, yeah, I think the second act of the movie is the messiest. Yeah, I think the third act is the most. Um, well, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I guess the third act after the killer's revealed, because I like the fact that the killer isn't revealed at the very end. Like, you do get a, like a pretty much an act of the movie where you know some suspense kicks in and you're kind of like oh yeah okay interesting and it seems like Tredoni's going to kill uh, Catherine at one point uh, it doesn't quite happen and uh, you know that that kind of stuff um I think I, I would have also preferred it if there'd been more kind of explicit parallels drawn between Alice and Tredoni so you get this element of like obviously part of what's made Tredoni into a killer is this kind of heavily religious society around her. And you can, I mean, maybe that's kind of what the ending's kind of implying as well with Alice taking the knife. It's like, oh, it's this generational uh, trauma that kind of goes from, from you know, goes throughout the years. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of like, like I say, this is what I mean by like a movie that's more interesting to talk about than it is to watch. Where like, I think watching it, I was mostly thinking it'll be interesting to get Mark's opinion on this the more than I was like, oh, this is really like provoking any opinion from. from no, that's, me. Uh, that's completely fair. I mean, I, yeah, this movie ticks a lot of boxes for things that I like. And I, again, I, I have a lot of admiration for this film. I will agree that it's, it needs a little bit reining in in terms of what it's trying to say and what it's trying to do. It's a little bit vague in what it's saying. And mm. maybe it doesn't really have a point to make. I mean, I know that. Um, due to the films the the director made previously, he had a lot of issues with like censorship from Catholic societies and such, and he grew up around a lot of this sort of stuff. So I think he has a lot of uh, inner turmoil when it comes yeah. to this sort of thing, and I don't think he's harnessed it in a way that's really saying anything. It's just he's kind of just using it as a, a, a conduit, I guess, yeah, to tell this kind of story. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's just that thing of like. Catholic imagery is inherently a little bit creepy, I guess. Yeah. Which, and, yeah. and it's everywhere in this film. That's the yeah. thing. Like, it's literally everywhere. It's just every frame of this film is dripping with some kind of Catholic imagery, which, uh, mm. fair play to the production team, I'll say. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I did think the film captured quite well was this idea of, like, in these religious communities, it is fucking everywhere. It's not just at the church, it's in the home, it's in the hospital, it's in the schools, it's everywhere. It's not yeah, just it's, um, it's not just something yeah, you do on Sunday, you know. It's like a constant background noise. But in terms of like looking at it in the ways that it's sort of inspired, like slasher movies, I think the look of the killer, the whole—I mean, like the mass killer thing—is not exactly no. unique to this movie. But the look of the killer in this is definitely very iconic and is very recognizable to people like ourselves who are you know quite familiar with the genre. Um, the the level of violence and gore as well. I mean, like. Again, we around this time period, films were getting a bit bloodier. I mean, Hammer Horror had blood and guts in it for a while, mm. but there's a there's a the violence in this movie feels a lot more. I wouldn't say real because it's it's not particularly like no. realistic violence, but it's very brutal. I would yeah, say. Yeah, I mean, kind it's, of. I think what this movie does in that regard is like uh, that maybe hadn't been done quite so much before. Is like this movie kind of revels in the violence. It's not presenting it necessarily in a way that's like 
because um, people uh, this is not a slasher film but people will talk, uh, will talk about like um, George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead as being kind of a like a shockingly violent film for the time but I think mm. the difference there is like that movie presents the violence as like horrific <laughs> it's like the debasement yeah. of humanity kind of thing whereas this movie definitely is rubbing your face in it a bit and is kind of like it's yeah. reveling in what it can get away with basically yeah, it's very macabre as well. Like, again, I love that shot at the end where Tradoni hugs Father Tom and just the blood just oozes all yeah, over her yeah. and down the ranker. It just looks so great. And there's even like a little bit in the hospital where Annie, after she's been attacked by the killer, which again, like that scene is, you don't really kind of see these kinds of scenes in a lot of movies, but like the killer is just wildly stabbing at Annie through the banisters on the stairs. So it goes in her thigh, it goes in her foot. Like it's just, it's not like it's a sort of constant like chest stabbing and stuff like you see yeah. in a lot of other movies. It's just... And I, it looks painful. That's the other thing as well. Like, I watch that scene and go, God, that would fucking hurt. Yeah, and there's blood <laughs> everywhere as well. as you know. Yeah, and, you know, Annie crawls out into the street in the rain, screaming, bleeding everywhere. <laughs> it's it's great. It's so great. But no, so circling back to the whole slasher thing, yeah, I think there's... I see a lot more elements in this movie of what would become more predominant in slasher movies. Like, again, um, particularly the way it kind of flirts with certain ideas and themes but never quite makes a commentary about them really mm. uh you see this in a lot of slasher movies where they try and tack on some kind of like religious motive or um they sort of section it section off a community and talk about something like that but they never really go that in depth on it really i think something that's interesting to flag up as well that you can compare with psycho is like speaking of slasher movie tropes that these films both kind of uh, help to encode Neither of these films really has uh, the final girl, virtuous woman who survives archetype, right? Like they both kind of have um, flawed female characters uh, at the center, I suppose. I mean, the closest thing you have to a final girl in this movie is is Alice herself, and she's not. I mean, she's she's virtuous by way of being a child, of course, but like is um, you know a troubled young lady to say the least. Yeah, not your traditional plucky heroine. Um, and you know Alice's mum is obviously uh, I mean this movie almost kind of flips that dynamic before it was even born because the killer is the puritanical one and yeah. the, the victims are supposedly sinners in her eyes right yeah the heathens yeah, yeah. Um, I think also like this this film is kind of like I would say it's kind of connective tissue between what becomes the American slasher with Halloween and everything that imitates that uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well, that kind of thing. Um, is the connective tissue between that and the Italian giallo movies? Yeah, because um, it definitely has that atmosphere of the giallo movie, and there's definitely the tropes in this movie. As someone who's seen a lot of giallo now, uh, definitely ring true. Like, if, if, you know, I, I would have guessed this was like a dubbed Italian movie, but I didn't know it was American because there's this element of like the detective story going on. Um, one like the murder mystery thing. One of the elements that you always get in Jallo movies is like that 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 puritanical killer thing is actually quite quite a big trope in Jallo movies, right? Like the idea of like yeah, absolutely. I'm killing these people because the way they live is is sinful. That's actually a big Jallo trope. Yeah, I don't torture a duckling immediately. Springs the to Lucio mind. Fulci yeah. movie. Um, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, and also the element of like the amateur detective uh, in this case the father of the victim. Although interestingly they kill him off, which is not normally what happens in the, the Jallo thing. The protagonist normally uh, 
at least makes it to the final confrontation, even if they don't make it to the end credits. The comparisons between like this film and Jalo uh, are particularly interesting because uh, Alfred Sol got asked about this. Um, and he claimed that at the time of him making the movie, he'd never seen a Dario Argento movie. He wasn't particularly familiar with Italian cinema, which, if so, fair enough, because this movie really has that energy and that vibe and that, yeah. like, even that presentation. It I, I call, like I call massive bullshit on that, just because what the fuck are you talking about? That's like if you made a movie with a giant monster, which is a guy in a rubber suit, and went, I've never heard of Godzilla. <laughs> it's like what you clearly did because look at what you made like I'm not you know, maybe he's not seen Dario Argento specifically but like come on now there's definitely some influence there just because just because there is there just objectively is <laughs> yeah it, it's very much on display yeah. I mean I, I I don't think it's trying to be a Jalo movie no. I think it's just it's it's sort of just cribbing elements of it and it is. I think the ass- assessment is very true. And when people say this is the closest that America has ever come to making a Jalo movie, yeah, yeah, without it being well, I'd caveat that with, like without it being a deliberate pastiche, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like a, genuine, like the... like a genuine Jalo movie, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's another thing that I like about it is because it has that kind of Jalo energy. And if I'm really in the mood for like that kind of film, this really does scratch that itch for me. Um, I mean, I would definitely put this in the proto-slasher camp because I don't think it fully embodies all of the sort of ideas and tropes that we would so commonly associate with the genre, but it's it's kind of got a lot of the the skeleton of it, the skeleton of that kind of genre yeah. there. Like, you know, you've you've got the iconic look of the killer, the sort of memorable characters, be it, you know, just because they're memorable because they're either absolute disgusting, creepy nonces or really, <laughs> you know wildly overacting micromanaging ants who need to just wind their necks in. She does need to wind her fucking neck in. She does. And the fact that she survives, <laughs> the fucking gore of Alfred Soul to let Annie survive is criminal. Um but you've got that element to it. You've got a loose who done it mystery, which again, like that's another thing. Like the later slasher movies, the who done it element is the big thing. Yeah, yeah. And because Psycho doesn't necessarily have that because we're kind of immediately told, well, Mother did it. Mm. There's no real mystery in Psycho, whereas there is a mystery in Alice Sweet Alice, but like you so rightly pointed out to me, if you've seen a movie... <laughs> yeah, the minute they introduce a housekeeper character who you don't hear from for another 30 minutes, it's kind of like, well, I mean, there's going to be hair, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, literally, you text me going... Calling it now, it's her, isn't it? That's uh, just like, of course you'd figure that out. Especially because when you see her, Alice is being confrontational towards her, and she's like, ah, you're not the child, you're silly, you get out of my way, I'm Italian. One little aspect that I do really like is because of Alice's um, love of pranking people, she puts on the yellow raincoat and the mask to scare Tradoni, mm. and I like the fact that Tradoni uses that as her look. Yeah, yeah. Because she's deliberately... Well, I, well I don't, no, I was about to say she's deliberately trying to frame Alice, but I'm not entirely convinced she no, is. I think I, I got more the sense that she's just uh, using that as convenient cover rather than that was her plan all along. Yeah, because it's only like the rest of the family, like Annie, who suspects it's, it's Alice. And you kind of get this weird thing with Annie where she's constantly saying to Catherine that she loves Alice like her own and all this. And it's like, well, I don't believe that for one second because you're you're awful to her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're absolutely horrible to her. <laughs> and, you know, you've got your own daughter who is 
clearly being neglected anyway. <laughs> yeah, because she's like, yeah, <laughs> she's just kind of, I don't know, she's just like a nothing. She just kind of drifted and out. But they're like, you know, that's the thing. And like, I just, yeah, I find this movie fascinating and bizarre and weird and creepy yeah. enough that it always kind of holds my attention. And I'm always, I always enjoy watching it. I do have to agree with you, though, there are some um, sort of, lulls in the in the plot and i think honestly it's the whodunit element that kind of slows this movie down where if it was just the batshit psychological weird stuff you know if it was just if it was just showing like if it was just a killing spree but also there's alice everyone thinks alice did it and the thing is as soon as what i'm saying is whenever it focuses on the dad i was like oh for fuck's sake can we get on with this yeah, but he get swiftly this, can gets we get this movie you know, going? killed off. Not swiftly yeah, enough. Not like and I, I do quite like the scene between uh, Dominic and Catherine where they start to sort of get it on again, and you know they're kind of looking at their marriage. And because nothing makes you want to fuck your ex-wife more than your daughter being killed. Does it? People don't care that Karen's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody cares. <laughs> um. But yeah, no, I think there's there's other elements of this movie that kind of filter into the whole slasher thing. I actually think the the murder of Karen at the beginning feels very reminiscent. Well, it reminds me a lot. Should I say it's not reminiscent, but it reminds me a lot of sort of later slasher movies that always start with a really horrific crime that often involves a child dying. Because you've also got things like Prom Night mm. as a big example, uh, Halloween. You know, a child is a murderer at the beginning of that one. It has that initial shocking first murder that kickstarts the plot and kickstarts the whodunit yeah, element. Yeah. Like that's very much there in this film. Again, that's still coming from Jalo movies. I mean, immediately Deep Red springs to mind as well. Sorry, my cat is just going insane behind me. Um, Crazy pussy. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know if there's much else to really say about this one. Um, I think it's a very sort of... I'd go as far as say as a seminal film in the, the sort of creation of the slasher movie because I think a lot of films have borrowed from this or at least used it as a template. But also this movie is heavily borrowing from Jallo movies. Yeah. So like I said, I think it's that kind of missing link between the two a little bit. Yeah, because this was four years before Halloween and 14 years after Psycho. Yeah, yeah. And also, 74, if I'm not mistaken, was also the same year as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm. which, again, is a movie that I don't... I would never call Chainsaw Massacre a slasher movie. No, that's just an uplifting story about a man uh, using his legal right to protect his home in Texas. <laughs> I'm serious as cancer. There's a good chance that Leatherface would have been let off for pretty much everything he does in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Stand your ground, am I right? You'd love to see it. Um, <laughs> that's right. Wow. Okay. I'm just saying, in Texas, good chance he would have gotten away with it. They came into his property, man. That's that's true. That's true. They they trespassed. They fucked around. They found out. <laughs> they did fuck <laughs> around and find out. Um, anyway, we're not talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, I personally, uh, if we're talking about slashes, I would kind of, I would lump that one in with the proto slashes, I guess, because I think yeah. what Texas Chainsaw brings in is like the group of teenagers element, you know? Yeah. Again, like it's got that to it. It's one. also got like. The really kind of recognizable, iconic killer. Yeah. Like, Leatherface's entire look is, you know, I mean, he has a range of looks as well. Yeah, you have um, yeah, he's Bloody Apron, Leatherface. Yeah. yeah, I like the suits and the, the, the makeup. I think that's a really interesting look for him. Um, 
yeah, I think there's a lot of influence on Halloween in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, particularly the the majority of the end sequence where it's just Marilyn Burns being chased for a good 10 minutes straight. <laughs> Uh, which again, Halloween kind of redid with Jamie Lee Curtis running around screaming her head off whilst Michael just slowly walks behind her. So, um, on that note, Mark, uh, shall we move into Kino or Inferno? We should, yes. Uh, well, you, you go first. This is your choice. Uh, I'm giving it a Kino just because I do, as you you know, you can guess, I do like this movie. Uh, I like it quite a lot. I've watched it a couple of times now and I always have a lot of fun with it. And it, yeah, like I said before, it ticks a lot of my boxes for what I look for in a movie. It's, you know, it's gory and horrible and it's just, uh, yeah, it's it's a grotty little time. It's got it's deeply upsetting in places and I've never failed to find certain elements of it to be truly disturbing, but I'll always, uh, you know, throw praise at a movie that can consistently disturb me. I, it's why, uh, yeah, I think that's why this movie is, I, I like it as much as I do, because every time I watch it, it does have an effect on me, and it's, I don't get that very often. Hmm. I think I'm going to, uh, I'm deciding my rating on the spot, um, on our patented binary rating system, which allows no room <laughs> for nuance. Um, I think I'm going to have to give this like a very soft Kino. Um, only because of its kind of status within the genre that it inhabits. I think if you ask, okay, here's something. I'm going to, I'm going to break the binary rating system. I'm going to say um, in terms of like what I'm giving it as an official rating, it's going to be a soft Kino. What I'm giving it for now on first viewing as a personal rating, I'm giving it, I'm dipping its toe into the inferno a little bit. Um, not because I don't think this movie's any good or there's not there's nothing worth watching about it. It's just I didn't find the way it was strung together to be as engaging as it could be. That said, there are some great scenes. Um, it has a suitably scuzzy atmosphere. I just wish that fucking dad character didn't take up so much screen time, honestly. That's the main thing for me. It's like, really, really drag the movie down. But, um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of my 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 take. If you're interested in slasher movies and the history of slashes, you should definitely check this one out. Um, that said, if that's not your bag, skip it. Yeah, I feel like if you're not as into these kinds of movies as what we may be, it's mm. definitely not going to be as, yeah. as interesting. Whereas like Psycho or Halloween, or even Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I would recommend to like anyone to watch, basically. Yeah, exactly. Those are great examples of the genre. They're great examples of filmmaking. You know, they've got a lot more sort of going on. I mean, like Halloween, especially like this, there's real craftsmanship mm. behind that film. Yeah. And I think that's why it's endured as well as it has. Okay, well, that's been it for another Kino Inferno. Hope you've enjoyed it. Don't be killing people. It's the wrong thing to do. But what you can do, if you do feel the urge to murder rise, is you can relieve that tension by, um, well, checking out our various online presences. Uh, first among them, but certainly, you know, that is not to diminish the rest of them. First among them is Spotify, where you can find us at Kino Inferno. I don't know why I start with that. Most people listen on Spotify, so they know. However, you can also find us on Facebook at Kino Inferno. You can find us at Instagram at Kino Inferno. Where occasionally, occasionally, that's not a word, occasionally we post um, <laughs> thirst traps and things like that. 
uh, Stitcher you can find us on because we figured out sort of what it is. Well, we didn't figure it out, but the kangaroo did. He, he's got that one sorted. Um, Big up kangaroo. At Kino underscore Inferno on Twitter. We're on YouTube. Don't know why we bother. We get like six views <laughs> an episode on <laughs> YouTube, but we're there for prosperity's sake. Um, so with that, I've been Aiden. And I've been Mark. And I've been Norman Bates, and I'm masturbating in my mother's tights. Oh, mother! It smells like cum in it. <laughs> <laughs>